Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, if you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. If I know one thing about diseases, it's that they're homebodies. No, it's fine. We, we, well, we, we make it. They just want to Netflix and chill. <laughs> we, we just line up the entire population of the U.S. in a line across the U.S. and we shoot any deer that tries to cross the line. I think well, we should we'll do the reverse and have deer shoot people who try to cross the line. It's the only thing that can protect us from the dangerous east. No, no, no. no. Look, look. Well, I, I guess it works in the east. In, in the west, we have to maintain the right to arm bears. Yep. I'm, I'm of the opinion, given how dry it is in New Mexico, that we need to sink every part of the country east of New Mexico to give it a coast that can, that can keep it moist. I wonder how much of this is going to get in the final cut. Well... If you live east of New Mexico, welcome to the ocean. <laughs> That's my suggestion. Um, speaking of people east of New Mexico, this is It Could Happen Here, a podcast where some of the listeners are east of New Mexico, even though I don't recommend that. Um, I'm Robert Evans. 
on, on the call with me is Christopher Wong, Garrison Davis, Shireen Lonnie Yunus, and then our producer, Sophie. Today, we're talking about terrorism. Yeah. We can do it in a little NPR voice. So, uh, <laughs> recently, the same week as the Supreme Court uh, leaked a document stating that they would be taking out Roe v. Wade uh, and ushering in an era of theocratic fascism in a number of states, uh, an individual or individuals unknown in Wisconsin attacked uh, an anti-choice headquarters building uh, with a Molotov cocktail and spray-painted graffiti on the side saying, if abortion isn't safe, then you aren't either. That same group or individuals claiming to be from them uh, later reached out to me through an intermediary and sent uh, a manifesto of sorts about the attack, promising uh, follow-up attacks within 30 days. But they wrote, but they wrote in cursive. So they did write in, who can say? Who can say if this actually yeah. happened? So we'll talk first. Let, let, I'm, I'm going to just go over first what what happened in like factual yeah, yeah. terms, and then we'll talk about the discourse around it. So basically, there's this attack on this um, anti-choice like advocacy organization's headquarters in fucking Wisconsin. Um, it was a, seemed to be a pretty good Molotov in that, uh, like Garrison, you and I have, have watched a number of people fail to properly utilize Molotov I've watched cocktails. a few people get ignited by Molotovs. <laughs> yeah. I've watched it is one easy cop to get fuck ignited. Up. I yeah. watched one not cop get ignited by a Molotov. Yeah. I've seen um, a couple not cops get ignited by Molotovs. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, they're not like people can fuck them up easily. Whoever did this did not fuck them up. It was, uh, seemed to be at the moment, no one has been arrested. Now, it's possible by the time this drops, Wisconsin police will be like, oh, no, there was totally surveillance footage and they fucked up and we just caught them. Um, But at the moment, it doesn't look like that's the case. So it looks like this is somebody who carried out or some buddies because it's entirely possible it's multiple people, but carried out um, a very effective like action that did material damage to um, part of kind of the physical infrastructure of the anti-choice movement. Um, and ended without anyone getting caught. So that's the fact of the actual attack itself. Um, a person who claiming to be affiliated with the individuals or group who did this uh, reached out to a, a source of mine who I'm keeping anonymous, but somebody who I've known for a while with a very good track record of being accurate and said, hey, these individual slash individuals have a communique they would like put out. Um, And I was sent uh, an Anon Files link, which is a link, if you view it in a normal browser, you'll get some fucked up shit. Don't put it in a normal browser. I specified it's like, you're supposed to, if you put it in Tor, it will download a text file, right? Um, And the text file is the communique. So using the Tor browser uh, for that link, you can get a text file in which they lay out, number one, they name themselves. um, And the name they've chosen for their group is Jane's Revenge, which is a reference to the Jane Collective um, which was a, an, a, a pro-choice group in the late 60s, early 70s that um, a- provided women with access to contraception and abortion illegally. A bunch of them went to jail. Uh, they were pardoned after Roe v. Wade, if I'm not mistaken, or at least if otherwise. If you want to know more about out. it, listen to Margaret Kiljoy's Cool People yeah. Do Cool Stuff two-parter on the Jane Collective. Yeah. Yeah, very well-timed. Um, so they're calling themselves Jane's Revenge, and they basically said, hey, if you are an organization in the anti-choice movement, you have 30 days to close down your operations. Otherwise, there will be follow-up attacks. They specifically noted the long, and it's at this point like a 40-years-long history of terrorist attacks from the anti-choice movement, uh, many of which have assassinated doctors. Something like 16 people have been killed 
um, dozens of bombs and bombing attempts, uh, something like 100 acid attacks. So they made a note of all that and said that, like, basically we will be um, we will be responding in kind. And uh, attacks after this initial attack will be correspondingly more severe. Um, they also claimed to have a pretty wide geographic reach, said they had folks in a number of cities. Um, and uh, that, yeah, there's going to be follow-up attacks, um, and they're prepared to pre- defend their bodily autonomy with violence. So that's that's the gist of what was claimed in the communique. Um, in terms of what I think about its legitimacy, um, I, I don't have any reason to believe they're not representing the individual or individuals who carried out that attack in Wisconsin um, based on the timing of when the communique was made and based on the fact that the communique is pretty consistent with what we saw from the actual action, right? So among other things, what you can tell from the physical action that was taken is that um, the the individual or individuals who did this were pretty well organized. They carried out a competent action, and they thought there was a value in very clear messaging because there's clear messaging surrounding the attack. The communique is very clear messaging. It does not sound like a right-winger writing up a fake communique. It's very – um, it takes great pains to both connect itself to history, to frame its violence within the context of the violence perpetuated by the anti-choice movement for decades. Um, and just in general, it's the communique seems consistent with the action that we saw in Wisconsin. Now, cannot say we cannot say, I cannot say to a, 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 a statement of certainty whether or not it's legitimate. One helpful thing they did is place state that there would be another more attacks in 30 days. So we're kind of waiting if 30 days pass and there's never any kind of follow-up attacks by this group, then we can probably assume that this was either somebody bullshitting or that the heat got too too much for them and they decided not to carry out follow-up attacks. Um, but we're all kind of in this holding pattern now to see what happens. My personal speculation is that um, they were exaggerating a number of things. Um, I think that the their claims about having members in a number of states and a capacity to strike in a number of states was more aspirational than literal um, in that I suspect the people behind this attack and this communique are hoping that by um, carrying out attacks, they can inspire other people to carry out attacks and credit yeah. it to the same organization, right? Yes. Which is not yes. an uncommon tactic in the history of, of terrorism. Oh. And again, this is terrorism. Like, that doesn't mean I don't think uh, they have a point or that it's like fundamentally unjust. Terrorism is just like a set of tactics that different groups can use, and it can be ethical or unethical depending on how you, you choose to do that. You can attack purely infrastructure. Um, in a terrorist manner, and I don't think that's necessarily unethical. And you can also attack civilians um, in a terrorist manner, and I think that is unethical. At this moment, these people have not done anything I view as inherently unethical. They burned a building, um, which I think is often justified and is in this case justified. So that's that's my opinion on the matter. Let's open it up. On the point you kind of closed with, I mean, yeah, they they showed effective direct action. They they did a physical thing. Now, Molotovs are not the best way to do like to like arson a building, but they are good for a very quick attack. Um, it caused this whole media thing, right? There's a lot a lot of people talking about it. Then releasing the communique through someone who can give it a lot of visibility, uh, and then by by doing it with this with this name, Jane's Revenge, and saying in 30 days there will be more attacks in different cities, the the message is that yeah, like you can. One way to look at this is if if they don't have tons of like you know members or allies that they know across different cities is that 
and anyone can do this. Like anyone can do this and call themselves by that name and be a part of this larger thing. Like it's you if you if you spread it around, then that it can become like this this thing that anyone can glom onto. It doesn't need to be you don't need to be a part of a member of a specific group. You can just do stuff and release communiques safely and add add on to the to the to the specter. Yeah, um, it's not hard to set up like a text drop in the same manner that they did. It is relatively secure. Like there's no perfect – if you are committing terrorism, there is no perfect manner to issue a statement. Um, but of the different things they could have chosen, this is relatively secure, especially doing it through an intermediary. I haven't had direct contact with any of these people. But um, we should probably note that there's a huge discourse that started before the communique came out arguing that this is like a false flag attack. Yeah, that's, yes. The, in in a long line of calling a pretty, pretty uh, well-planned out direct action, when it actually happens, people will default to calling it an op or calling it a false flag um, from a variety yeah. of people. Like there's, there's like, there's like libs who say, Oh, this is a staged thing to make our movement look bad. There's tankies who think it's like the CIA planning something. There's random other folks who are like, eh, I don't know if it's legit. I think maybe it's like some, it's a lot of people get various, various justifications for calling pretty effective uh, acts of direct action. Uh, and in questioning questioning their legitimacy. I think some of this comes from, because there's obviously there's the bad faith elements of this, um, but I think the good faith folks who question it, there's a lot of learned helplessness there. This idea yeah. that because yeah. somebody did carry out a, 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 a pretty successful direct action attack that, that kind of did what its intention was, then it has to have been the FBI or whoever, right? Because um, obviously the left could never have pulled off something as uh, as cunning as throwing a single Molotov at a building and spray painting the side of it, you know? Um, and I, I do think that that's a problem, whether or not you think the solution to issues like uh, the right-wing attack on reproductive health care come from direct action. The fact that folks almost can't conceive of effective action being taken by the left without the feds being involved is really an issue. Yeah, and this was a huge thing during 2020. Like one, one of the things that we saw, like there, there were so many just weird conspiracy theories. And then the other thing that happened very quickly was – People became convinced almost immediately that anyone doing anything was was a federal infiltrator, and you got people, you got crowds turning people over to police. You got people on Twitter like trying to track down, um, like who was throwing Molotovs in videos, and like one of the people they caught, they turned over to the police. It turned out had been had been the girlfriend of someone who got killed by the cops. Yep. And so, I mean, this stuff, this stuff has yeah. has this stuff has real world consequences. It has already like sent people to jail. It has. It has this enormous demobilizing effect. I mean, I don't remember people. Two people remember the, the okay, the the the, the two tw the two big twenty twenty consp. Oh, okay, the two big Twitter conspiracies were um bricks bricks and who's dropping yeah, off was, the bricks the, at the, the protests? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there was this whole thing that people were like people would see a pile Famous of bricks and they were never like, oh my seen God. in a major right American next to city. a construction <laughs> right next to a right yeah. next to a construction <laughs> site. They'll be like, how are all these pallets of bricks showing up? This there's, there's like a construction site a block away. And you're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Who's distributing the fireworks? How do these fireworks get here? Well, never it's mind also, it's June 29th. Um, if you look at like, the history of like 
like the FBI, some people will mistakenly like throw the CIA in there. The CIA doesn't really tend to do like the domestic fuckery, um, their international fuckery. But like, if you look at the history of the FBI fucking with left wing social movements, it's not by handing out brick pallets. Yeah. (laughs) Like, Like that's not what they do. We have a lot of documentation about what they do and it's not bricks. And if there is some secret group who's maliciously giving mm-hmm. out bricks, so people attack, uh, throw them through windows or throw them at cop cars, like, who cares? This, yeah, well, yeah. Like, like, bricks the, are getting thrown at cop cars. It doesn't matter where they come from. Like, the, 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 like yeah. people the, are the, still choosing to do action. Yeah, the, the, the best example of this is is the, the Russian Revolution in 1905. The Russian Revolution of 1905 was started by a guy who was a police agent. Like his whole thing is he he was he was he was working to create like police like unions that could be controlled by the state and he marched a bunch of people into a square and the police shot them and that's how and that's how, that's literally how the Russian Revolution started. Like it doesn't it doesn't it like there's a there's a point okay there, there like there, there's two layers of this one is that like there there almost is never a conspiracy going on and two if the conspiracy is we want to push people towards doing things it almost it doesn't there's a point at which it stops mattering because. A lot, a lot of people forget about Occam's Razor when we're talking about these types of things. Usually, the the more simple the answer, the more likely it is. The more the less involved parties, the more likely the the more likely it is. So, if there's a choice between rad people fucking up an anti-choice headquarters versus a government conspiracy to do false flag operations to make the anti-choice to to make the the abortion movement look bad, like. One of those is much more simple and much more uh, likely, and it's people just deciding to do stuff. Because guess what? You can you can actually do that. You don't need to yeah. rely on these on these weird narratives to to like to justify your uncomfortableness at, at like at forms of radical direct action. Because it, it's it's it, people use that false flag idea so so they don't need to actually engage with what direct action will mean, and if it is someone's moral imperative to physically attack like physical manifestations of these sources of oppression. Yeah, I think you're right on the money there. I think one of the things that's most frustrating to me about this is it it kind of suggests that a sizable chunk of people who ostensibly consider themselves on the left are like focusing their time not on doing anything and not on taking any action to materially change the conditions they're angry at. Um, but are instead looking for reasons to disavow other folks on the left and that that's like yeah. the primary, which is if you, again, if you like look, look at what we know Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover was saying about the FBI's COINTELPRO program was the goal of COINTELPRO, right? Yeah, that's, what I, um, that's what exactly what I was thinking. I'm just like, I feel like this promotes, I don't know, a morality like uh, race or like just like competition where – the only thing it does is just promote infighting when you have this, like, you're on your morality horse. But I think if you actually support uh, real change, you have to come to terms with, like, you have to do illegal things. And, like, holding on to, like, these made-up laws that someone made up about, like, how to achieve change is useless. And there's, I mean, like, dividing up a side that's supposed to be going for the same thing. Like that's exactly, yeah, it's just, it's missing the whole point and people don't really, yeah. If you look at the right, you've got all these folks who were like legal and, and whatnot, uh, proponents of, of 
ending reproductive health care access. And then you have the folks who are doing repeated acts of terrorism. And the folks who were on the legal side of things didn't disavow those people. They were often affiliated with churches that did shit like auction off the possessions of like extremists who had murdered doctors and shit. Yeah. Like they were like even the most they would do is just not directly talk about those people. They didn't yeah. disavow them. They didn't like attack it because they understood that a diversity of tactics was going to be how they achieved their goals, that it was a mix of pushing for these legal changes and carrying out so many terroristic attacks that it frightened people away from supporting um, abortion service providers and other kind of reproductive health care service providers. I think that's like um, the biggest difference between the right and the left, though. Like, Democrat, like, Republicans are really good at uniting on this big picture, and I feel like Democrats are not. <laughs> I feel like they just, uh, I don't know. It's too, there's too much well, infighting and that's why it's always fractured. Part of it is that on the Republican side, you have uh, Republicans and you have the far right who are also Republicans. And even though a lot of folks on the far right bitch about <laughs> the centrists and they're up, like the folks who are closer to the center, they all get in line for really radical stuff. Like the center of the Republican Party always yields to the radicals. Whereas Democrats do not acknowledge leftists as having anything to do with with the Democratic Party or Democratic politics, other than to yell at them when they don't vote. Um, and on the other hand of things, there's a lot of folks on the left who hate liberals more than they hate fascists, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and it's it's – uh, I think one of those is a bigger problem than the other. I think the the failure of the Democratic establishment to – like deal with the left at all um, or make any kind of progress uh, that could be seen as, as actually, actually left wing is, actually be is a left -wing much party. more of the problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I, I think, I think yeah. there's, there's there, there, I think there are structural reasons for that too, which is okay. If, if you look at like, what is the basis of the conservative alliance, right? If, if you're a conservative, you know, okay. If, if you're from the sort of like moderate business wing of the party, if you're from the fascist wing of the party, right? You can have one judge who gives both of you the things that you want, right? Because if you're if you're like the Koch brothers, the thing that you want is deregulation, right? You want to be able to just like dump poison into the environment. If you're on if you're on if you're an evangelical, the thing that you want is uh you know to no one can ever have an abortion again. And you know if you if if you're like a fascist, I don't know, maybe you want like we don't give food to immigrant children anymore, so they starve to death. And one judge can give you all of those same things. Because the the, the 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 sort of the the class and social issues of the Republican base can all be fused together without harming each other, but the problem with 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 this with the Democratic Party is that like the Democratic Party's basis is like what's left of the union movement, but then also like a bunch of corporations and banks and like weapons manufacturers and stuff, but then also like a bunch of angry students and also like a bunch of people from different minority groups and all of these people like have different interests and you know and the democratic party ultimately like the thing the thing that they care about is keeping capitalism going and you know if, if they have to like if, if if that means that yeah i mean well okay if, if, if your thing is you want to keep capitalism going like of course you're just going to throw your left wing out to the wolves right like it it it, it makes sense for them to do this because, because the part of their base that actually matters isn't like the labor movement it's like it, it, it's Goldman Sachs. I, I think that one of the other things that causes people to have this, like immediately, anytime someone does, someone does like if people remember like when, when Nancy Pelosi's driveway got graffitied. Oh yeah. Yeah. With, like now see name. that was like, that's never, never, that's horrible. 
don't graffiti Nancy Pelosi's driveway. That's evil. Yeah, like that's I, an ISIS. You did an ISIS there. Yeah, everyone lost their mind and was like, "Oh, this is obviously a false flag." And it's like, "What?" Well, you know, but, but it, the reason they do this is because they have they have like Democrat optics brain. Where like instead of anything being yeah, about yeah, politics, yeah. every everything is just about optics and optics. How does it look? How does it look? How does it look? And like the only people who care about this are like weird pundits. But because because everyone's so sort of absorbed in like the Twitter media sphere, like they they think that like the actual general public cares about the things that pundits care about because the only thing they're seeing is pundits writing angry articles. But like nobody cared, like no, zero like, people, especially the graffiti thing. Because man, yeah, people like dissect how someone sprayed an anarchist a. Yeah, and yeah. It's like if you're not most, aware, like most... a big chunk of the discourse, re it being a false flag or whatever, was that. The, they spray painted it in cursive. Painted, yeah. <laughs> and Which, that they they did they did like a, a they did like um the anarchy a inside the inside the circle, um and it's wild because I mean spray painting um, what they said like if if, abort- if abortions aren't safe then you aren't either in cursive is a genius move it's great mm-hmm. because if you spray paint it in some like random punk font that's easy to be ignored You're like oh it's just people doing like whatever yeah people spray painting stuff but doing it like methodically in cursive. Is is a is actually a really good choice because you're like oh yeah. it's like we're dealing with adults it's like like the, the type of things that people will go through their minds when they look at it is great um, and it's just a weird denial to assume that no one who takes radical direct action would ever write in cursive it's just a, it's like yeah, the most the most brainworms mm-hmm. thing and it's also like it's also very clear like like okay so I I am very bad at spray painting right but like I have I have used a spray paint can. And because Allegedly. I have used a spray paint, well, this isn't alleged. I was, I, I was, I was, I was making, I was making banners for stuff. So this wasn't even like okay. this wasn't even crying spray. This was just like regular spray painting. It's like that is hard. Like yeah. writing that in cursive and having it look that nice with the spray paint can is like difficult. Which you know, if 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 you think about this for about five seconds, this makes it more likely that it's actually leftists doing this because it's like, what? Okay, hold on. So the the anti-abortion people have one person who's really really good at graffiti. <laughs> And this they is the person that they've assigned. Yeah, they they they, they, they sent him to the years. anarchist school in secret <laughs> to like learn. It's like it's nonsense, but it's like people people just people want everything to sort of like like. And I think this is the other angle of this is that people think that like have this wild overassessment of the capacity of the state. Yeah, and they think that anytime something looks slightly weird, it's like oh, it must be the state. Like like one of the one of the things that happened with with the Brooklyn shooting too was like. You had all these people. There was this tweet going around that was like, "Oh, what, the, the the cameras just happened. All all the cameras, all the cameras in New York were working except the exact one that would have caught the shooter." And this this is like everyone circled around this, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, this is a false flag." And then no, it turned out that like the guy had literally called the police, but the police were so incompetent that like other people like saw him on the street and got to him before mm-hmm. like the cops did. And it, and the, the camera, it turned out wasn't even like the camera that was out. Wasn't even the camera that like, like they had him on camera. It was a different camera, but it was like everyone, everyone just immediately has this like conspiracy brain thing where they see like one thing out of context that looks slightly weird. And they go, oh my god, this whole thing is a, is a, is a state like CIA like yeah. false flag. It's cover so depressing. It, it's so depressing because it's such it's so depowering. You're specific. You're, you're like it, it ties into the learned helplessness thing that Robert mentioned. Like you're convincing yourself that we don't have power to change things, that we cannot take any physical action to change things, um, and that's 
a not great mentality to have if you want to improve yeah. the world, <laughs> if or if you want to if you want to destroy the things that harm you. Um, you do you don't want to fall into that to that specific like I don't have any power mindset because you turns out you can do stuff. It things happen. You can. <laughs> People threw a Molotov and broke windows and did graffiti. Shall for we the say center. cool people sometimes do cool things? <laughs> yes, just like the um, name of the stuff. podcast. Do cool people stuff. Do stuff? If yes. You're gonna plug the show. Plug the show. Sophie. 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 That's my Sophie. name. Sophie. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me, and it 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 might hold some lessons for folks thinking about radical direct action and and what gets attention and what doesn't. So obviously the, this attack has garnered a lot of national attention, right? The fact that, and it, I think it's because there was both an attack and a message. There was another attack and it's not a hundred percent that this had anything to do with the uh, uh, pro-choice movement, um, but I suspect it does. The attorney general of Virginia, Jason Miares, um, on the 10th of uh, May, there was a Someone is shot into his office, like a bullet was found in the office. Um, it was probably fired when no one was there. We don't really know more than that. It is unclear as to whether or not this is involved with things. But three days before the shot was fired into his office, he had basically Catholic groups had been planning big masses to celebrate the leaked draft opinion. And protesters had been organizing to protest the Catholic masses. And he had threatened to charge people who protested masses. Um, because he believes the right to freedom of religion trumps the right of free speech. So it was kind of like a fucked up situation. People got angry at Miares. Um, and it seems kind of noteworthy that someone shot into his office three days after this. Um, well, and I mean, not, also, I mean, there's been yeah. a lot of stuff. I mean, like on on May 8th, there was an attack on uh, the Oregon Right to Life building. Yes, yes, um, yes, which was, was certainly a pro-choice, a pro yeah, Yeah, there, was, there, yeah, yeah, there yeah. was there was at least two Molotov cocktails uh, thrown and there was a break-in inside. So it's like, you can do things. You don't have no power. Like, you can, physical, you can interact with politics in a physical way. Um, yeah. People do interact with politics in a physical way. Yeah, um, and, and, and people people have this assumption that, like, this is going to be incredibly unpopular. And again, I want to point out, burning the third precinct had a higher approval rating than both presidential candidates. Like, if, Which, if, I mean, I, 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 again, tend to advocate in 2024, we should elect the burning of the third precinct in Minneapolis as president. Yeah. Look, every look the the, the 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 way that works is the burning of the precinct takes office, and then every day you burn another precinct so that so that you can actually have a president. Well, well that is how you fill the cabinet. Yeah, um, yeah. there needs to yeah that too. Yeah, yeah, you have to. Well, yeah, all 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 the, all the staff mm -hmm. positions filled with yes, all the staff positions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the health and the health and human services secretary will be the West Los Angeles police station and so forth. Yes, I'm real excited to see which one gets picked for the housing secretary. I am mm -hmm. just on my on on my toes. Just um, yeah. It's, it's exciting. It's, it's exciting. Democracy can be really quite fun. Electoralism has some has some really cool, really yeah. cool points. Um, yeah. Hey, you you too could go in front of the National Labor Relations Board, and the National Labor Relations Board is just seven is just seven on fire police stations. Yeah, charred you will bricks. win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, 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 we just we just want, we wanted to at least talk about this because if whenever a cool thing happens and. A large swath of 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 people who are ostensibly leftists or even or even anarchists mm. default to calling anything cool uh, a, a false flag or an op. It's like, well, 
like what do you want like do you want people just to stay at home all the time and not do anything like what's what's the end goal here uh what if you're calling you, everything would... that happens enough yeah and and also just like if you're going to if you're worried about ops and thinking of suggesting that something might be what is your line is it just that people broke a law are you saying that if people do illegal things, that's always like a government op? Because that doesn't seem like the if you call yourself an anarchist, that doesn't seem like a good strategy. Well, yeah, I mean, especially when it comes to reproductive rights, like you're going to have to do illegal things if people are going to have to break a shit. Exactly, yeah. Shireen. So it's like yeah, very pick and choose. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm 100% convinced that like all of these people if they'd seen John Brown would have been completely convinced that John Brown was Oh, John off, Brown like, was for sure the FBI. Like, he founded just, it. <laughs> the original op, John Brown. <laughs> I, I, I think there, there's an aspect there of also like okay, if 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 you're on Twitter, right, mostly you're not doing politics and the, the 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 thing that you're actually doing on Twitter is trying to feel smarter than everyone else, and if you're the person that's like, oh hey, look, all these sheeple believe that uh, this thing yeah, yeah, yeah. wasn't an op, or like, oh I I all, all, all these the people believe, yeah, it's like and it's like yeah, okay, you you very quickly like spiral into just like every, every all all the, all the sheeple who are I woke, a smart person finds this suspicious. It's like, you're like yeah uh-huh. yeah, and it's it's like it's just, it's just a bad like. L- looking at an element of event and going, oh, this is weird, but in a way that is, oh, huh, isn't this weird? It must be the government. Like that's that's just a bad way of thinking. Like about in in the mere hours, in the mere minutes after uh, anonymous people broke into the uh, Portland Police Association headquarters uh, back in, I think, was July of 2020. Just in mere hours, people were calling it a false flag that the police mm-hmm. were d- dressed well, up they, as they, black they, block, they breaking into their own the feds. <laughs> The feds, they the said, feds. The people had started protesting the feds, yes. They alleged that this was like, I guess, the FBI or Homeland Security trying to get protesters angry at the cops again, which is, I mean, for one thing, if that actually, ever would actually strategy. happen, that sounds like, great. <laughs> if, if there were to be a point where the left wing had the FBI fighting uh, or the FBI or Homeland Security, whatever, fighting with local police over who was getting protested, that's a win. That's a, that that's a, a big, solid yeah. capital dub for the but no. <laughs> People for thinking the team. Like, like the FBI is in block breaking into the police union building and trying to light it on fire. You're like, well, yeah, if, doing if doing they- less physical. Let's be honest, doing less damage to that police union building than I have seen my friends do when attempting to deep fry French fries. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's- I have watched people do more damage to their living rooms than that protest did to the PBA. It's astonishing because like there was so many people at that action and so many, so many people using the moment to to actually gain like physical political power for a, a, yeah. a brief a brief moment um and to take that away from them is just a is a bizarre yeah. impulse and i i would like to see it end especially as we're going to see hopefully see that people will realize that 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 direct action is going to become more and more important for securing your personal rights and securing your personal freedom yeah. Well, and also, I would say to these people, okay, if you want to be completely sure that something is happening, it's not an op, do it yourself. Stop yeah. yelling about it on Twitter. Look, do it yourself. Then you'll as, know it's not an op. As but- a general rule, as a general rule, look at France. What do the French do whenever something they consider a right gets taken away from them? They burn downtown Paris down. <laughs> they light banks on fire. They, like, Paris, everyone who has, gets elected to a position of power in France knows that if they cross certain lines, the capital will be ungovernable. 
Um, and there's a reason why French people have such quality health care. <laughs> well, with 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 that note, I mean, I can't believe we're ending on the note. Be be like the French. I just can't, is that is look. Uh, the French have made a, a lot of good calls, a lot of bad ones too. Not trying to whitewash <laughs> France, but there's a there's a number of things they got spot on. <laughs> so and anyway, yeah. we will we will be counting down the days uh, until that thirty day marker. And who knows? Yeah. Maybe other attacks will happen with people. Also calling themselves Jane's, Jane's Revenge because... And uh, obviously, this is something that we as journalists have no opinion on one way or the other. We're just reporting. Just pure reporting. Anyway, yeah. listen to cool listen to who, uh, cool people who did cool stuff uh, yeah. to, uh, to, to hear about the Jane Collective. Yeah, and, and uh, maybe also recreationally read about what different civilian groups are doing in Ukraine and the degree to which a wide variety of incredibly available tools... Um, can can be repurposed in neat ways. All right, I think I think that I think that's the sode. <laughs> that's a good sode. That's the sode. Bean Dad, the dress, thirty to fifty feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. 
Freeze, Americano! Jane, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, and uh, it continues to happen here. Um, I'm Robert Evans. This is a podcast about things falling apart and uh, what to do after that happens. And we are all currently dealing with the falling apart of several decades of progress on reproductive justice, um, the Supreme Court leaking that um, they are Coming for Roe uh, v. Wade. And um, yeah, today I'm here with Christopher Wong and Shireen Lonnie Yunus um, and my producer, Sophie. We have two guests uh, from the Bridget Alliance and the Midwest Access Coalition. We're going to talk more about what they do in a second. Broadly speaking, both seek to um, attach people who are looking for reproductive health care and abortion access um, but cannot get it easily in their area um, with clinics and the things that they need in order to get to the clinics, including transit and you know time in hotels, whatnot, um, in order to make it easier to get access to that kind of healthcare in places like the Midwest, where folks have been spending decades making it much more difficult, uh, even prior to this recent ruling, to get that kind of healthcare. So uh, I'm going to let our guests introduce themselves. Um, you've got the floor. Well, hi, I am Odile Shalit. I am the executive director at the Bridget Alliance. And I'm going to introduce my counterpart here. <laughs> I'm Diana Parker Kafka. I'm the executive director of the Midwest Access Coalition. And yeah, so y'all have been in some ways kind of dealing with elements of uh, the post row world. Because obviously, like, you know, we're all focused on the Supreme Court decision that's in the pipeline, but um, anti-choice activists have been working very hard to essentially create a post-Roe world in chunks of the United States prior to this point. So y'all have been kind of dealing with the reality that a larger number of people are going to be living under for a while, right? Yeah. Yeah. Missouri has been able to effectively ban abortion in its state for years now. I think, uh, there's maybe a handful of abortions that the one clinic there are able to do because of all of the trap laws, um, which is the targeted restrictions for abortion providers uh, and the waiting period. So, so people have to go to another state, Kansas, 
Iowa or Illinois for Missouri. Um, and we've been helping those folks for years. And um, I'm going to guess this, I mean, just because you've been living in with this for a while, I'm going to guess the announcement last week did not come as a total surprise. The timing of it certainly did, uh, which for Diana and I came at the heels of a conference that we were at, thankfully together, um, which is was kind of just pure luck for us. So we could actually commiserate together. But no, ultimately, this is not a huge surprise. I mean, I think we're all still waiting to see what actually happens in June. But the writing has been on the wall for months or in years, if not longer. And, you know, as you were just pointing it out, essentially for organizations like the Bridget Alliance and the Midwest Access Coalition, we have been existing already because the protections of Roe are insufficient to actually secure abortion access for all in this country. So this has been our lived experience. And preparing for this moment has um, has been a long time coming. And I I'm sure there have been a number of conversations that have been going on about what to do and how to prepare for this, right? Because the primary change is going to be, at least initially, until some they make some sort of federal push, that states that have some sort of functional access to abortion are going to be flooded with an even ha- higher number of people in need of care. Um, could you kind of walk us through what sort of steps have been taken to in order to kind of brace for that impact, so to speak? Yeah, so I think a couple of things, and and the first to sort of pull back on that for a second is to say that part of preparing for what's to come has been our orgs and the community that we exist in, this, this incredible expansive landscape of different types of organizations that have existed for decades to secure abortion access where the laws were insufficient, where um, people were faced with barriers like income inequity and uh, ge- geographic inequity and the unavailability of providers. Um, this network, though, has existed largely unseen. And so a lot of preparing for what is to come is really embracing our existence, feeling affirmed in that and in our value, not shying away from the expertise within this community, which is held both by volunteers as well as staff. Um, And so I think a lot of the last couple of years has been focusing on really trying to harness that expertise and that knowledge and compassion and the fact that Many of the people who are leading a lot of the efforts in the reproductive justice movement are people who have had abortions themselves, which is a enormous um, and valuable part of how this movement moves and hopefully will continue to center the people most impacted by the fall of Roe. I think more specifically for Bridget and orgs like MAC, preparation means deepening our relationships with the clinics that we work with. They are critical, of course, and their sanity is critical to abortion access, is making sure that we have the sufficient funding to continue to staff, train, vet, volunteers systematically and mindfully, um, and ideally do so in a sustainable way so that we're not all overwhelming ourselves with the sudden surge of need and the sudden surge of impact. Um, And then, you know, for Diana and I, even personally, it means deepening the relationships that us practical support organizations have with one another, because no one organization is going to be able to help every single abortion seeker who will need to travel. It will 
rely upon really strong and transparent collaboration. So those are some of the things that we've been focusing on. One of the things that strikes me as a problem that's going to be, if not immediate, then then pretty imminent for y'all is we've already seen threats and promises from legislators in some states to attempt to criminalize leaving a state where abortion is illegal in order to get access to health care. How what what kind of preparation is even possible for that sort of world? Because it, it does seem like we're staring down the mm-hmm. barrel of that. Yeah. I think the only preparation we can have right now is to expect that the courts will allow them to do that. Um, they're very creative now that they've seen SBH go into effect and hold on as the law of the land, even though it's in direct violation of federal law. Um, SCOTUS, the highest court of our country, uh, is the one that has been allowing that to happen. And so that sends a huge message to all these uh, forced birth legislators that, you know, bring us your worst take on the law. Uh, we will find a way to let you keep it. Um, we're, we're working with you <laughs> on this and um, you just need to get bolder and bolder and see what you can get away with. Uh, so we can't really predict how they're going to do that, although Missouri has. Uh, indicated that they're going to consider an egg as soon as it's fertilized a resident and um, a resident of the state that they have, you know, responsibility for protecting, um, completely ignoring the fact that it's growing inside a uh, complete human being that has rights. Um, But that's, that's the latest that I've heard of them figuring out how to restrict someone's, someone's travel. Um, but it would require a significant shift in how we understand constitutional law and um, the basis for our legal system. Yeah, and that that seems like something that, I don't know, like really genuinely seems to be on the table in this moment. I mean, we have, I think it's Louisiana who's trying to, like part 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 of their bill is that they, like literally it says that they can disobey the federal government, which we had a civil war about that. We had, we had a nullification crisis mm-hmm. about that. We like, so yeah, I, I guess I'm wondering what your impression is on like how far this can go. Like, do, do we get to the point where States can just like tell the federal government? No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what the architect of the SB law essentially told the court is that they don't, have jurisdiction and all the laws that they had passed in the 1800s are actually um, enforceable and the federal government has no authority to stop them. And uh, there, the fifth district and SCOTUS has (laughs) indicated that, no, maybe you are right. Maybe that is the correct way to interpret our constitution. Um, So I, I feel like all of that, all of our decades, centuries of um figuring out what the law means for this country is just up in the air and uh, we may be looking at laws now that are just more and more bizarre um as long as you know the gop and the right have control over so many bodies of our government you it really is i can't even fathom 
I don't think we can predict what's going to come, honestly. Um, I mean, I'm also wondering, to put it crudely, will legislators in states that are currently committing, because we have seen a number of states, California kind of leading the pack, committing to maintain um, access to, to, to abortion and other forms of reproductive health care that are being threatened right now. Do, do you like, do you feel like you have a good chance that they are going to back you, especially in the event of, you know, laws that would potentially open people like you up to criminal charges just for trying to support people in getting, you know, reproductive health care outside of their state? Is your question, do you, do we think that elected officials that are pro-choice are going to back us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, like, it's entirely possible that we're going to see some sort of federal law that not just criminalizes abortion or even like prior to that criminalizes aiding people in seeking abortion outside of states that have banned it, right? Like that's on the table. How does that change the landscape for you? Do you suspect that like in kind of a similar way to how some of these, uh, some of the legislators in states trying to ban abortion have said like, we're just going to ignore federal law if it contradicts our state law. Do you think that, um, do you think that pro-choice legislators in states, you know, like California are going to be willing to go to the mat and protect you or are, are we, I mean, yeah, I, I guess I, I, I know this is kind of an unknown, but I'm kind of, these must be conversations that y'all are having, right? I mean, I really freaking hope that they are. And if they're listening, please, <laughs> please prepare to do so. And it's been really heartening to see states like uh, California and Oregon and Illinois and New York and Connecticut, for instance, um, come up with really clear language around their support of not just choice, which was the language of the past, but abortion and are saying that and are starting to invest in things like abortion funding and travel to themselves actually you know, put forth their own efforts to contribute to the people who will need to travel into their states. Um, mm. And, you know, Diana was just speaking the other day with a bunch of elected mm. officials in Chicago. So I, I think I think this is also why what I was talking about earlier in terms of orgs like ours coming coming into the light is so important is that we we're, we're going to need those relationships with those politicians. We're going to need them to know us and see us and understand that we're a critical part of how we're going to serve their constituents and that, yeah, we're going to need them to back us. Will they? I can't say definitively, <laughs> but I really freaking hope so. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully those, you know, as Odile said uh, just now, I was um, in a press conference yesterday, the city, the mayor's office announced this fund to support abortion procedure funding and practical support and my hope is with um, municipalities will talk to each other and give each other the models for doing uh, this protective, preemptive uh, support for people traveling to our uh, states for abortion care. And um, yeah, I'm in with talks with the ACLU in Illinois to talk about potential um, bills that are floating around to even further protect uh, abortion in this state. Uh, specifically, I know of one that wants to explicitly protect providers from being extradited or sued or shut down by prosecutors in other states that want to claim that they have jurisdiction because, like, they, like I said, they figured out a way to give residency status to fertilize eggs or something, you know. 
I still can't get over that. Just completely fucked that that's kind of what we're staring at, right? Like that that's that's a thing that you have to be concerned with is like out of state law enforcement. I don't know, like and and that's the thing, no one knows what it's gonna look like, right? Like we know that they have a vested mm-hmm. kind of interest already in in doing parts of this through bounties, which is kind of like the thing that I'm worried about. Are we going to see like out of state law enforcement bounty hunting people trying to mm-hmm. hook folks up with reproductive health care? And I guess that's just kind of an unknown at this point, but it's right. And it, it really depends on like our local protected state jurisdiction, like how far are they going to go to protect us from those entities that are going to try to come in for us. Um, just this, just today, uh, one of our staff members tweeted about practical support funds and who to support throughout the country that provides the sort of travel logistics uh, help for people. And they got followed by a sheriff's department in Missouri. Oh, fun. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. So they're already, you know, uh, targeting and surveilling uh abortion seekers and the people who support them. Yeah. And of course, I'm sure that there's a degree to which some of these folks are working with, um, shall we say like non-state actors in order to, to mm-hmm. do that. like, I know they've been prepping with that for a while as well. Absolutely. Um, what is, I mean, one of the things that I, I know, cause I've been having some conversations with friends of mine who are in like, I guess we could say adjacently, uh, adjacent organizations to to where y'all work and who were at in some cases the convention you were at who are concerned that as providing people with reproductive health care becomes illegal um there's going to be a lot of fair weather friends kind of revealed and I, I i i am interested like is this a thing that in order to be engaged in providing people with reproductive health care you have to be willing to engage in illegalism at this point? Like, is that really where we are? That's a really interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as as member, like as 501c3s, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> looked at by our state governments, our yeah. federal governments, we can't engage in anything that's legal. Um, but people have forever uh, on their own, done things that the state has considered illegal in order to have bodily autonomy. Um, there are people who can't afford it. There are people who are just so far from the nearest clinic that it, they can't even fathom how to make that trip. Uh, there are undocumented folks. Uh, there are people near the borders that can't even physically move past uh, a border checkpoint because they're just trapped there and can't get care. Um, in other parts of their state where it's available. Um, so there, that, that will be a thing. I think that is going to increase because the need will not decrease. Um, and I, <laughs> I do not, like my organization can't really say anything about that, but sure. you know, personally, I'm like, you do whatever it takes to live your life and thrive. Um, laws are made up. <laughs> especially now yeah that is nice to hear because i you know i i try to keep abreast of the the sides of this fight that are you know working through 501ccs and and the like and and engaging in electoralism the people who are you know doing stuff like trying to figure out ways to um provide access to like miso pills and whatnot to people um Mm -hmm. because that's just where we are 
we've talked about the degree to which you guys have already been living in some people's future, you know, just because of the specific nature of what your organizations have been doing um, and the degree to which, you know, you knew some of this is coming. What has surprised you outside of just like the fact that it got leaked ahead of time about kind of what we've seen in the last week and change? Mm. Hmm. I think I am, I'm not so much surprised by the response from folks. Um, I'm a little <laughs> frustrated that it took this moment for people to realize what has been happening in this country for the past decade, few decades. Honestly, this is, this is a very long game. Uh, mm-hmm for the antis, but ever since Trump was put into office and started just flooding the federal courts with very young, very anti-conservative judges, um, and SB8 was a huge flag. Um, But I think I, I, I was surprised that there was a mass amount of people that were going to step up uh when the decision came out um it's it gives me hope i hope it's sustained for the many many years we're going to need uh practical support and abortion funds while we fight for our legal rights um yeah so i guess the surprise is a mixed it's a mixed bag for me yeah i was gonna say something similar that i think I've been pleasantly surprised at how well educated and informed a lot of our supporters and newer supporters are about, as Diana mentioned, the existence of abortion funds and practical support organizations. That practical support is even being talked about is huge. We couldn't get this conversation into the media oh, yeah. a couple of years ago. So like this is really remarkable and important, but what's more, there seems to be also like a deeper understanding of why we have to exist. Um, It it doesn't seem to be shocking people quite as much, although there certainly are still tons of people who are shocked by this, but for many, they're not shocked that for some abortion has simply been inaccessible and what those reasons are. Um, And, you know, that's thanks obviously to a lot of the really hard important conversations that have been had over the last couple of years about racial justice. And I think that, you know, it's a silver lining for sure, but I'm, I'm grateful to find that the, the depth of the conversations is there now. And hopefully that means that the commitment is going to be sustained in long-term because this is a little bit of deja vu for us in the sense that we've had little moments like these ever since our organizations existed. Um, when a single ban goes into place or is threatened to go into place, this like swell occurs. I'm using my hands a lot, which obviously you can't see if you're <laughs> listening to me right now. So I'm going to put my hands down. Um, and, you know, and that, and that brings out a lot of really incredible donors and a lot of really incredible offers for volunteers and, and then they tend to go away. Um, and especially when, when Biden was, you know, elected, yeah. there was definitely this like moment where everyone was like, okay, we're cool. Right. We're chill. Yeah. This guy hasn't said the word abortion, but we're still <laughs> fine. And we're not, we're like the furthest from fine. So yeah, again, like pleasantly surprised that people seem to have, um, a sense of why we're here. Yeah. 
I just wanted to bring up that website did Biden say abortion yet dot org, I think. Uh, oh yeah. One of our colleagues. It just has a big that. no. Yeah. I, it's just like it's so unfortunately hilarious to me. Um, but I'm just really glad it exists. Um and then they someone reached out to the someone in the Biden administration to make a comment on this uh when the when the the draft was leaked and they said, well, we tweeted it or like whatever. It's an, it's like, it's, he said it once in a tweet and like once in like a statement or something. Oh boy. So I just think it's well, very funny. Well, there you funny. go. I don't know what more we want. But like, I just think it's important to what you were saying earlier, um, how legislators in like Oregon or California, like it's so important. They're saying the word abortion, not just pro-choice, because I think a lot of people are, a lot of people are scared about that word for some reason, or it sounds scary to them if they're not that educated about what pro-choice means or what abortion means so i think yeah i have a little bit more hope seeing more people even saying that word um yeah because it's we not really just have to take it back. yeah mm-hmm. yeah i think the statistic is something like the antis have been using the word abortion three times as much as we have mm-hmm. and that is why it's so stigmatized and difficult to talk about and yeah I definitely try to encourage people to say the word abortion, to talk about abortion with everyone they know, uh, just so we can stop hiding. I guess kind of the last thing I'd like to ask, and we can we can cut this bit if this winds up not being something you want to get into, but have you <laughs> have you felt an additional need to worry about, given how public you are in your advocacy, personal protection um, as things kind of have heated up? Uh, you know, we were we were recently at the the conference that you mentioned before, yeah. um, and it definitely, with all of my colleagues in one place, it definitely made me feel a little vulnerable for myself and them. But honestly, the the, the people who are targeted are the providers by far. Um, I'm not worried about my physical safety. Um, I'm worried about the physical safety of our of our providers and the fact that our government is responding to peaceful protesters outside Kavanaugh's uh, house and talking and, and asked for, I think, Susan Collins on the sidewalk outside her uh, residence results in legislation being passed. Immediately. To protect immediately. Yeah. They all somehow got together for once in their lives <laughs> to do something about the terrorists who chalk sidewalks outside legislators' homes um, uh, is it's it's really demoralizing um, because we have our providers have seen violence and um, yeah they've seen violence almost every yeah, day I mean, murders acid attacks bombings mm-hmm. um, yeah. Chris, Shireen, do you have anything else you wanted to get into? Yeah, I wanted to ask one thing. So, you know, okay, seeing this sort of increasing fecklessness of our politicians, even by their standards, and, you know, their their response to this being, let's give more power to the U.S. Marshals, which is maybe a great the worst idea. idea I've, yeah, worst mm-hmm. idea I've ever seen. But what, what can just people do about this in... in you know, I mean, we we talked about like giving to abortion funds, but like, what? How how can people get involved, and how can people get involved in a way that's sustainable over the long term? 
Yeah, I mean, definitely give to abortion funds, give to practical support organizations like the Midwest Access Coalition and the Bridget Alliance. Um, if you are interested in volunteering, reach out to your local organization. Um, there are a couple of really great resources for lists of those organizations and where they are, like the National Network of Abortion Funds. Um, and you do bear with all of us because we are handling a flurry of emails and that's incredible, but we won't be able to plug you in immediately. Um, it might even take a little bit of time. But then mm -hmm. I think that, you know, voting is still critical, especially in local, um, in any local elections, especially if we're thinking about how we're going to prevent the possible criminalization of abortion seekers and of abortion providers. We need to make sure that we've got good judges and good local elected mm -hmm. officials at the very least. So do not stop doing that. Um, yeah, I think those would be the things that I would say focus on. And the thing that I always say, which is just like, talk about it. Like, I am totally that person who is like the downer at the dinner party talking about abortion. But be that person and go and talk about it and share why it's important and how it's not just about abortion and it's not just about women. It's about families. It's about parents. It's about queer folks. It's it's about immigrants. It's about minors. Um, we've got a lot to be worried about right now. So don't stop talking, listening, reading, consuming, whatever you can. Yeah. And just to jump off that, uh, if you are in a safe state, you're not going you're not going to be safe forever. Uh, they're going to come after us. They're going to come after the legislators, the, the Supreme Courts of those states. Uh, they're usually a thin margin um, as far as conservative versus progressive judges on state Supreme Courts. So find out who your local org is that is leading that um, voter turnout to make sure that people are voting for the right judges to go in. Um, and also, I want to lift up escorts. Uh, escorts are on the ground many days of the week. Uh, they will put you to work and they're going to be needed more and more. Um, yeah, I think that's that's all very important and a good note to to end on. Does anyone else have anything else or are we um, should we should we let y'all get back to your very important work? Um, and thank you again for for making the time for us. Absolutely. Thank you for covering this and talking about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Appreciate it. Happy to do so. We'll be we'll be continuing to to do that, and I hope you all um um. Jeez, I don't even know what to say. Like, I I hope you um <laughs> I hope you fuck shit up for the people who are fucking shit up. You know. <laughs> we'll try our very very best. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I hope the support right. doesn't like dissipate as like yeah. the, the trend goes away or whatever, you know. I think that's so disheartening if that happens and like hopefully the flood of emails but not necessarily remains a flood for you, but like I hope that people are actually serious about doing something and um I think this time they might be just because I'm I keep being surprised about uh little things. So I'm not going to expect anything anymore. Maybe people will, will surprise <laughs> me. Yeah. <laughs> But I really appreciate the work you do. Um, so thanks for coming on to talk to us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 
16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous (laughs) of your generation that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
Talk to your Zoom H6 about crack cocaine abuse. Some amount of crack cocaine is perfectly normal for a recording device to use. It is part of the recording industry. But everyone can overdo it, and if your Zoom H6 starts not reading cards or, for example, stealing from you in order to pawn your stuff to buy more crack cocaine, you might need to do an intervention. This has been Robert Evans and a public service announcement about the Zoom H6 handhold recorder. How was that? Are we good? Yeah. Is that a good way to introduce a podcast? What, pod- <laughs> what podcast? It depends on your answer. That's a great question, Sophie. Scholars have debated for decades which show this is, but personally, uh, it is the opinion of myself uh, and a large body of researchers at Oxford and Cambridge that this is It Could Happen Here, a podcast about how things are falling apart and how maybe put them back together one of these days, figure it out. I'm here with Garrison and Chris. How are you guys? How are, how are y'all doing? Just, just absolutely splendid. I, mm-hmm. I'm extremely excited that every time I leave Twitter, there's a new mass shooting. There's, there was it's, like boy, 20 this has the been, past weekend. It's been there, a lot. There, there have been quite a few mass shootings in the last 48 hours, <laughs> and there's a non-zero chance there's been at least one between when we record this podcast and when you listen to it. Yeah. I'm not trying to be flippant. That's just a reality. Um, so I think we're going to talk about the two most recent ones, one of which... Um, was the mass shooting in Buffalo, New York by a 4chan motherfucking white supremacist, uh, very much patterned after the 2019 8chan shootings, particularly the Christchurch massacre. Um, And then the day after, I guess it's not technically a mass shooting because only one person was killed, thankfully. Um, But there was a shooting that was certainly an attempt to be a mass shooting because he attempted to close the exits and stop people from leaving at a um, a Taiwanese uh, church um, in Southern California, um, which was stopped by the congregation before nearly as many people could get killed. Um, and appears to be, it's just come out, um, motivated by nationalist hatred of Taiwan by a, a Chinese man. Um, that's yeah, the it's, broad understanding of both. It's complicated. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we'll get into that. Into that. But we should probably deal with them chronologically. Um, The Buffalo shooting is... It's one of those things. I made a big chunk of my bones as a journalist in the field that I used to spend most of my time reporting and covering the 8chan shootings. And after every one of those in 2019, I had an article within about two hours. I haven't written anything about this one. I don't plan to because there's not much to say. It is what we've seen before. Um, I know there's some debate over how much of the man, as there should be over like how much of the manifesto you can take at face value, which is none of it. Um, And as to whether or not there might be something more going on here. But it is kind of my opinion from the information we have that this is the kind of attack we've seen before and the kind of attack we will probably see again more than once before the year's over. You know, this is someone who was radicalized primarily um, against uh, the immigration or the existence, really, of people who are not white in the United States um, and believes that the best way to cleanse the country of people who are not white is to carry out mass shootings that will radicalize other people and that will lead further to the breakdown of civil society in the United States by pushing it kind of like hot-button issues like gun control um in order to further you know it's an accelerationist sort of attack um so yeah that's that's what i'm seeing here yep i mean it's yeah like like we said it's very very much riffing off of uh christchurch i mean at least mm-hmm. 
over half of his manifesto was like specifically ripped plagiarized from the yeah manifesto uh, which of course that manifesto itself was was ripped from a lot of other yep. manifestos yep. it's kind of yep. this just series of like launching mimetic language from one shooting to another mm -hmm. just kind of compiling into this massive conglomerate mm -hmm. that's all based on trying to convince more people to do the same act um uh, that's really I mean, yeah. that, that, that's that's why when people are like talking about this and People try to limit the attention on the manifestos and that kind of stuff because it's it's all crafted specifically to get other people to do the exact same thing. Um, it's yes. it's filled, filled with memes, filled with filled filled with in jokes, full of like in group out group stuff to convince people to kind of go down a similar path. And all of it's carefully crafted that way. The one really interesting thing about this is that there's not only manifesto, but also like almost 700 pages of diaries that he posted as well. Yeah. Um, and logs from from like over like 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 from a long long, long time uh, tracking his inner thoughts, but also like again he posted it and he knew he was going to do this. So there's no telling how how accurate that is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all it's all in this package that he wants to present to people. So a lot of the nitty and, gritty is not even worth talking about in a lot of a lot of cases. No, and I, I'm not. I think there's broadly speaking things you can learn. And I'm also I, I to be clear, I'm not against researchers. Oh, yeah, study no, no, and no. I think it should be absolutely. absolutely I am against just finding a thing in there and like posting it like when I when I made my post I was pretty careful to note a couple of things that seemed consistent based on other aspects of the like things that he claimed about his radicalization that seemed consistent with what we were seeing like he noted that he was primarily radicalized online that seems plausible to me because of how fucking online the manifesto is yeah. um like and and it's one of those folks are not entirely wrongfully bringing up the fact that the the great replacement white genocide sort of conspiracy theory that seems to have motivated this fellow is basically identical to shit Tucker Carlson says. That's not not that's, relevant. That's not but, what radicalized but, him, though. I, but that's I, not what yeah. radicalized him. Yes. That's, this that's this is not I, a dude who was watching Fox, right? That's, like, that's something not I've been frustrated this. by looking yeah. at the discourse, because yes, obviously Tucker shouldn't be talking about this because he's normalizing this very rhetoric that you find in these manifestos. But he did... The, the, he did not find this from Tucker. This no. is like it's it's a it's a whole whole different ball game. Um, and when there's that conflation, I do find that to be slightly frustrating. Um, yeah, it, and some of the problem with discussing this is the problem with discussing basically any of these attacks is that the mass media coverage of it is nearly always going to flatten it to a degree that works in the favor of the people who are using this as propaganda of the deed. Yeah, and. We can talk about maybe are there ways to determine that, you know, I've, I've definitely that's something that I've spent a decent amount of my career kind of struggling with. It's it's a tough thing to do because um, one of the things that's very frustrating that we've, we've seen in the wake of this attack and that we see in the wake of basically every politically motivated attack is a whole bunch of people from a whole different bunch of belief systems and sides immediately trying to spin it in order to push the narrative they think is useful for the attack to have. And some of them believe legitimately what they're saying. Like the fo I think most of the people who are like, this is, you know, Tucker Carlson's doing, are generally just folks who have not spent as much time in the fever swamps as we have and see, oh, Tucker Carlson's talking about this, this guy carried out a shooting, they must be related, right? I don't think that's like that's wrong, yeah. but I don't think that's malicious. And then you get folks who are malicious with it, right? Like you have all the, the Azov Italian stuff is the, the is, folk, yeah, right. One of the one of the narratives we've seen form, particularly from what I like to call the shithead left, um, is 
folks being like, well, there was a Sonnenrad, the black sun. It's a Nazi occulty symbol. People who are more nerds about Nazis will even quibble that. But that's that's the broad strokes of what it is. Um, and it's it's a symbol that's definitely on some Azov gear. It's also on a has been on a bunch of shit well before it's there was an Azov stuff battalion. Since the 30s, since the 40s. Yeah, it's, it's not, all it's over not, the yeah. fucking place. And um, it, the reason he did it, the reason he had a black sun on some shit was not because of the Azov battalion. Um, it, in fact, he talked about wanting to break up NATO a bunch, uh, but it was because the Sonnenrad was on the chest of the plate carrier of the Christchurch shooter. Yes. Yeah. But there's all and he's of a big people, fan of the Christchurch shooter. There's all of these people who are like, yeah, authoritarian left or whatever, who are being like, oh, how can Americans condemn this attack when this guy is is, is using Azov imagery? And they're, uh, there's no telling how genuine they are with this. Like, there's there's no telling if if they actually know what they're mm. doing or if they're just or if they're just being like, if if they're purposely misinformed or what's going I, on. Cause, like, it doesn't my... it, it doesn't matter, but. Yeah, my my, narrative, my my assumption with those folks is that they are doing it because if you are um, a competent paid propagandist, you want to always be pushing the narrative in a way that furthers whatever it is your job to push. And if yeah. your job is connecting Ukraine to every bad thing that happens and a mass shooting that has nothing to fucking do with, with Ukraine or the Ukrainian government um, – if you can connect it back to them, then you're back in your wheelhouse, right? Because maybe you're not so strong talking about the fact that you and some of the people around you have been friendly with fucking Tucker Carlson, uh, and he pushes a similar narrative to the one this mass shooter used. Maybe that's uncomfortable. What is comfortable is saying, no, this guy who did this bad thing is tied to these other bad people who are tied to this group that my entire career is about attacking. That's a much stronger position to be in, you know, if you're, you know, a propagandist. It's just like you see folks on the right who don't want to grapple with the fact that this was a right winger who carried out a terrorist attack um, based on an ideology that even motherfucking Ben Shapiro has pushed elements of. Um, you don't want to deal with that, so you call him a leftist because we, we saw the same thing with Christchurch. He could, yeah, he made a couple of vague. He's not a leftist. He repeatedly identified himself as right wing and as a fascist, as a Nazi, um, as a, an ethno nationalist. Um, but he made like a couple of vague comments that they're taking out of context and being like, see, he was on the left, um, which he wanted to happen. That yeah, is like, which he which wanted like, to happen. That's why he yeah, put it yeah. in there. Right. It It's it is like, it is all part yeah. of the bit. It's all this. It's, 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 it's yeah. all of this, like, I, like irony poison thing that they do <laughs> yeah. on purpose to give anyone a propaganda out or give anyone a propaganda. in. It, it's it, all. It, yeah, it, if you'll we, remember seen it in, before, it's not it's not it, new, but it's frustrating. Yeah. In the Christchurch Manifesto, Tarrant um, said that he'd been radicalized by Candace Owens, yeah. um, who's like a person who says a bunch of shitty fucked up stuff. I don't like Candace Owens, but like had nothing to do with that guy's radicalization. Right. Like that's not that's not where he's fucking coming from. Um, but he did it because he wanted to because it's fucking it's shit posting. You know, it's to muddy the water. It's to get people like it's to. It's to reduce the ability of people trying to grapple with what has happened to accurately see what has happened and accurately identify the problem and respond I mean, a, to a it. Big, a big motive for this stuff is to cause this kind of social and discourse chaos, right? They, mm -hmm. they want people, they want everyone to be confused and they want everyone yeah. to be fighting each other and, and, dis and disagreeing some... on basic terms, right? The, the, whole, the whole point of this is to like encourage gun control legislation, which will get the right match, which will cause people be, mm. to be more willing to do mass shootings or to do attacks against government, right? It's, it's, it's all part of ba like yeah. basic, very basic accelerationist uh, uh, like talking points and, and tactics. 
So and all, it, the confusion's not accidental. It's all it's it's all intentional. No. If you I think a good way to look at this, if you like fighter planes and helicopters in a combat zone will have a, a type of countermeasure they will launch if someone's shooting a missile that's like a tracking missile, heat seeking or whatever at them. It's called chaff. And it basically it looks to the missile the same as a helicopter does. So you shoot a bunch of these out and the missile goes and hits something that's not the fucking helicopter, but to its sensors looks like a helicopter. That's what they're doing. They're shooting out chaff. They're getting you to like box with shadows rather than potentially landing a blow against like the central problem. And the central problem is not an easy one to grapple with without all that stuff around it, right? Because the, the issue here is how the way in which the internet enables radicalization, the way in which online communities are prone to radicalization, um, the way in which uh, the conservative media and aspects of like just basic American history play into this specific people who want to do violence in this way for this reason, um, which is why the cops don't notice them even when they're on their radar, which is why that like the the warning signs don't get spotted. Um, and the ways in which I think more than anything, the ways in which the internet has created a perfect incub incubation chamber for radical violence. And that is one of the stories here, right? Um, you know, people are focusing on gun control, um, which this guy bought his gun in the state of New York, which has the most restrictive gun laws in the country. Um, what's more relevant, even if you're on that end, is this guy was deeply involved in like tactical Reddit. This guy was heavily involved in, in tactical videos and training videos and talking Slash with K. other people about the best weapons, the best ways to use them. And if you watch the, I don't watch the video, um, but he was competent. He engaged competently. He did. The, the, he maximized yeah. his ability to do damage. He took out somebody um, with a gun who was attempting to stop him. Um, that shit, the stuff that he did to prepare tactically worked. And the kind of tactical chunks of, of, of Reddit, of the internet, which are not all right wing, but a hell of a lot of them are, and a hell of a lot of them have gone in very scary directions in the last couple of years. Um, not only do I suspect contributed to his radicalization, but I can say certainly contributed to his ability to effectively kill people. Yeah, I mean, he had like over five pages just on what helmet he yeah. picked out. He had pages on what socks he was wearing, which is not, which is for multiple reasons. It's one, to make the actual act more effective. It's two, to inspire not like discourse like this, but also to to get people to replicate what he did, right? It's yeah. crafting all of these symbols that people can replicate. Be like, oh, he picked out these socks. That means I'm, I'm going to yeah. get these socks. I'm going to get these socks. Right? It's, gonna, yeah. it's, it's, it's all this branding thing. Um, We should take, we should take a break and then I want to come back and talk you know, about some mimetic language stuff. You know who else can give you good advice on socks? Oh, I bought. All right, here's ads. Okay, um, I want to talk about some memetic language stuff because this was all heavily riffing, on, and I, I specifically use the term riffing, um, off of the Christchurch shooting, uh, which itself was riffing off other stuff, right? But he, he, he yeah. went so far Yeah, I mean, to... the, the Christchurch shooting was a copycat shooting of the uh, Anders Breivik shooting, or at least descendant of whatever term you want to use. Yeah. But that's what inspired the Christchurch shooting. And it's... Yeah. <sighs> I mean, he, he was the, the, for for the Buffalo shooting. He was testing out different live streaming platforms. He was doing all this stuff to craft a very specific image, and like images are very are very, are very powerful. We've talked about like meme magic before. If we, if we want to get silly about it, um, but he was very very much involved in crafting these things that could be replicated visually. 
Um, that's that's why he wanted to live stream it so bad. It's that he just the, the same way the same way uh, Christchurch was, and this is like really important for why we don't share this type of stuff and why we why we specifically clamp down on this on this on on this style of propaganda and why we really encourage people not to share it, not to look at it, not to do that stuff because he he does in in the few parts of the manifesto that that he did write. Um, he does. He did say, like, watching the Christchurch video was very impactful for him, which I don't disagree with. I'm sure. I'm sure it was. He he it did change the course of my life. Yeah. <laughs> he, even and he did great lengths to recreate mm-hmm. it. Um, and this is why we, people who are like researchers and people who kind of hand, try to handle this kind of stuff, um, in, in like in their time on Earth, uh, are so particular about this. Like, I uh, uh, think last year, like a year and a half ago, there was this film company based in New Zealand, who wanted to make a Christchurch film. Uh, uh, and they want they were going to film a recreation of the shooting, but they said like, oh, but it's to, to show the horror and to show the impact it had on the victims. Doesn't fucking matter. It, ma- it matters zero amount. Because once you put that language into cinematography, you are giving them basically ammunition to help create propaganda, which will get more, yeah. m- more people killed. This is why the same th- we see the same thing on fucking... Um, Roblox. We see people recreate the Christchurch shooting on Roblox. It was actually a major problem, like a year ago specifically. It was a huge problem of people recreating the footage inside this game engine, and it's it's specifically it's it's very it's a very powerful tool that they use to spread around. Uh, it's targeted specifically people ages twelve to eighteen. This this guy was eighteen years old. Um, it's he was heavily involved in online gaming. He was a really heavy um, Reddit user specifically. Um, he loved Discord. So it's it's these are the places where, where it spreads e- even more so than eight chan now. To yeah, to and, and I, I would extent. say we ne- and that called him like a four chan shooter because number one he definitely was familiar with with poll and number he two was on there. Like, yeah. he, he announced his live stream there. I do agree with you. Reddit was a bigger part of his radicalization, I suspect, and in, in a lot of, and Discord probably. And I suspect he yeah. did purposefully minimize the extent to which conversations on Discord were part of his radicalization journey in particular. That would be my assumption at the moment. But for, for countering this type of rhetoric and this type of propaganda, right? Because they're, they're trying to make themselves look cool. They're trying to make themselves look tactical. They're trying to look, mm-hmm. they're trying to make themselves right, look like they're in a video game. Make, they make it look like they're in a movie, right? They're trying to be cinematic. Like they, he, was, he was testing out different cameras. Um, he, he tested like a GoPro. He tested, he tested out his phone camera, right? Trying to get a specific look. Um, and we, we, just, we just talked about how he was tactically proficient in some ways. But in handling this type of thing, we have to when we're crafting counter stuff to make this to make this thing less likely we need to not even focus on that we need to make them look stupid make them look juvenile make them look like they're pathetic make them look like they're stupid and silly like they're larpers that's one of the things that saved god knows how many lives at kind of the high point of the eight chan shootings in 2019 was that fucker in hall germany tried to carry one out and got the piss beat out of him by a dude at a mosque yeah um and was photographed the next day in court just covered it's like beat to shit um that image probably saved some lives they they want to be cool they want to be mimetic they want to be spread around as a symbol and we need like culturally need to yes this is obviously very scary this is a very real threat for many for many people many people of color many black people many many muslims people of different religions jewish people queer people but we need to when when specifically crafting rhetoric and propaganda against these things we need to make them 
look pathetic, right? That, 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 that's yes. what it needs to be framed as. Because if you make them look scary and competent, that's actually going to make these things worse. Um, because they 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 love that, right? Like, as, as if if you film it, the Christ, if you do any kind of like movie about the Christchurch shooting, no matter how you shoot it, they're going to love it. If if mm -hmm. you're showing people in pain, they they want that. They want that. It's that's the that's what they're looking for. You need to specifically frame this as these people LARPing and these people being pathetic and people being terminally online um, and having bad social skills. Like you, you need to you need to frame it in this way that makes them look not desirable because their whole point is to craft this desirable and visually stunning propaganda. Um, and I think yeah, that's that that's I, I've been thinking about this for the past the yeah, past day or we'll, so because we'll, there's just been so much. But like, hey, I, I, identifying these people isn't the problem, right? Like this guy, he was he was talked to by by counselors last year because they were afraid he was he was going to do a school shooting. Um, like there was a lot of the red flags and stuff, and like the, he was he was talked he was talked to by people before this happened. Like he he wasn't an unknown factor. He wasn't an unknown of the v vector. To make to make this to make to you know to, to be this a person that can do this, but there's there's no way people are very people are good at fig, finding these people before they do it, uh, but we're bad at actually stopping them from doing it once we find once we find them. Uh, there's there's really no power to stop it, um, and interrupting any kind of radicalization pipeline mm -hmm. is really hard. So it's more about laying the groundwork to make the pipeline look pathetic, so it's harder to happen again. But Always countering yeah. this stuff is frustrating because if there was a good strategy, and we wouldn't be here. Be be deeply. I, I want to move on to the yeah the yeah. It's time to move California. On to the next one. But at the at the end of this, to close out, be deeply suspicious, if not outright contemptuous, of anyone who posits a simple solution to these shootings. Whether that solution is gun control, whether it's expanded police powers, whether it's fucking arming everybody so that they can shoot shooters. Anyone who proposes a simple solution to this, this is a deeply complicated problem um, because we let a number of horrible, horrible, obvious problems go on for way too long. And the solution to this will be painfully, agonizingly difficult and will take time. And there is there is not a simple, all-encompassing way to deal with this. Um, one of the things that you can do right now to better prepare yourself to potentially deal with this problem is take a Stop the Bleed course, carry an IFAC and a gunshot wound kit um, as often as possible. And that continues to be my best immediate advice to people um, because that there's no downsides to doing that and it, it could and does save lives in other shootings. All right, let's move on. In other news. <laughs> in other news, the next shooting. Yeah. <laughs> Hooray. Yeah, okay. This is a weird one. Um, and I, I think the... Th thing we need to make clear up front is that this happened yesterday um as a time of recording still yeah time of recording details are still emerging and it's weird there's a lot of potential to, so so for, for people who don't know um a presbyterian church in california was attacked by a, a chinese guy this is this is a taiwanese church um it's mostly senior citizens and i mean, th okay so th there's there's a few important things up front that people should probably understand about this one is that okay so taiwan taiwan is ruled by military dictatorship 
for, for like basically the, the 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 better part of of the post World War II period, it is ruled by a military dictatorship run by the Nationalist Party, the KMT. The KMT is extraordinary in in this period. It is extraordinarily violent. They they assassinate people all over the place. They kill people on American soil. They kill. They train death squads in Latin America, and you know they're 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 known for the sort of human anti communism. But eventually, they're sort of Toppled by revolution isn't quite the right word, but as, you know, the, the KMT as a party is still around today and is one of the two sort of major, like, Taiwanese political parties, but they're not like the sort of desk, they're not exactly the sort of desk squad mafia party that they were through most of the 20th century. Um, the, the, sort of, the, the, the sort of progressive forces that worked to overthrow the dictatorship, a lot of them coalesced into a party called the DDP, and one of the th- things about the DDP is and there's a lot of sort of complicated Taiwanese political stuff here but they are very very closely connected to the Presbyterian church in a lot of ways and this I I, I don't know the specifics about this church but there is there is a very strong connection between and then the 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 DDP are okay pro-independence is putting it too strongly but if you're a pro-independent like you you want Taiwan to be an independent country and you don't want them to sort of like either continue well okay this, this is the problem with Taiwanese politics it's enormously convoluted uh <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on at some at any time and this, people are going to get mad at me for the supplications I'm making but yeah the, the the short version of the story is that the sort of anti-CCP pro-independence e-forces are and the sort of like progressive movement is sort of lumped into the DDP and those are the people who are getting shot yeah, like because yeah, because again, there's there's this very strong connection between Presbyterian Church and the DDP, um, and the KMT. Who again, I mean, okay, they, they've had an extremely complicated relationship with the Communist Party over the last hundred years. It's incredibly baffling, but they've basically swung around towards being more favorable to China, and there are there are some fact extremist factions of it that are that support unific like just unification. Um, what seems to have happened here is, okay, so this, the, the, the shooter's family seems to have been like deported from China to Taiwan and he like did not like it in Taiwan. And, and, and this is where it starts to get very murky. Um, the, the police statement we have says that it, you know, it's about sort of racial, like it's, 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 it's an anti-Taiwanese animus. But that can mean a lot of things, and yeah, and this this again, I I keep saying it's murky, and it's because it's it's genuinely murky. There's a chance that this is one of one of the things that's been happening since the Hong Kong protests is a, a solidification in mainland China of sort of anti of anti Taiwanese sentiment has sort of lumped in, in in this sort of like nationalist anti Hong Kong thing. There was there was a hardening of rhetoric against yeah, yeah. Uh, Taiwan, but also there's a lot of there's a lot of people in Taiwan, like like especially KMT hardliners on the hard right, who like really, really, really intensely hate, like the sort of, like the the sort of progressive, anti CCP pro independence people. Sure. And you know, and this is something we don't we don't know what his affiliation is. 
He was like in his like no. he was like in his like his sixties, right? Yeah. Well, and, and this is this this is this is weird because like there's a lot of things that that could be true about this because of how old he is. Like, again, you know, I mean, he 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 is around when the KMT is is straight yeah. up a death squad party, right? Yeah, yeah. So it could be that it could be he's sort of like independently radicalized. There's been some like rumors might be too weak of a word, but there 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 have been. Some some kind of sketchy reporting that like his ex was leaving for Taiwan and that that may have played a part in it. But you know, I, violence between the KMT and people who don't like the KMT is a thing that there wasn't a, there was a lo- very large amount of in the U S for a lot of reasons. And even though the KMT is sort of like, I mean, their, their alignment to China has like flipped in the past about 40 years. I, I don't know. I'm, really really desperately hoping that that's this isn't going to set off i mean because i mean th- there's already been a lot of especially around hong kong there's been a lot of physical violence like people attacking each other at protests about between for example people who support their hong kong protests and uh chinese like ccp nationalists but this is something different very weird very embedded in the taiwanese context and i don't think we fully understand what's going on here um the other thing again is like this guy he like he lived in taiwan like he, he was speaking taiwanese like when when he was essentially like going into this church to infiltrate before he shot everyone so like he this isn't like this this this, this isn't and, and i think people are reporting it like this because they don't know what's going on but like this this isn't a case of like a guy who was from mainland china who like decided that he hated taiwanese people like this he he was there he like he, sp- he speaks he speaks taiwanese he like understands the Taiwanese political situation very in depth, which presumably is why he targeted the specific church. But other than that, it's, it's the motives are still kind of murky. And this is the other problem with it, which is that like the sheriffs, like there's no way that the sheriffs have any idea what they're looking at. Like they, they've been apparently reading his personal notes and it's like, I don't trust their analysis of it good because, lord no yeah like these <laughs> if you weren't here we would have to find someone else who understands that conflict in order to talk about it i don't feel comfortable like trying to figure out or analyze that guy's notes i sure as shit don't trust some fucking sheriff's oh, yeah, deputy no. to do it like, like yeah this stuff is <laughs> like yeah um i don't know yeah and, and i think that that's i don't know i will say like I, this i think was like the worst possible scenario for like what that shooting is about because this is a kind of this is a kind of violence that was really intense like right after world war 2 and sort of like and, and, you know there there's been periods where like yeah i mean it, people have been like people have gotten killed here but it hasn't been that violent in a long time and I don't know. I'm I'm hoping this is just one guy who had a particular grievance who I don't know like was was pushed by sort of external factors but if this is a sign of like if if this is a sign of sort of anti-taiwanese like national well okay so there's one other thing that that we need to talk about because that's unclear because there's two kinds of potential like right-wing chinese nationalism at play here and it's unclear which one's happening because there are there are people who are right-wing chinese nationalists who are like pro-ccp right but there's also a kind like a kind of like 
it, it, it shifted, but there's also like a a a like a, a KMT nationalist based right wing Chinese nationalism, which favors sort of like reunification with China, but is is not the same thing as as the sort of mainland nationalism and has its own particular like very local political grudges, like with with the GDP and with the sort of like progressive e movements in Taiwan and. I don't know. Anything beyond that is kind of like trying to figure out which one it is. Like, we just don't know unless the police, unless the police actually decide to like show us this guy's notes or like give us recordings of what he's been saying. Uh, we're not going to know. And maybe, maybe by the time this is out, like there will be more stuff, but right now it's very muddled, very bad. The fact that this guy also, I think was an American citizen, but was born in China has gotten every uh, like even even the Chinese media outlets are saying extremely weird stuff because they're confused by it. So it is a it is a muddled is a muddled mess. Uh, I mean, and, and everything about this last weekend's been muddled. There's been so many different mass shootings this weekend. Yeah. There's been people being paranoid about copycat mass shootings. You know, uh, yesterday there was reporting that uh, a, a gunman entered a church in Buffalo. Um, that was uh, not actually true. It's uh, someone, someone in the church yelled um, uh, like the, there's a gunman or, or something or like, um, or like get the gun down or something. Um, and it caused people to create this, this kind of rumor, but that, that there wasn't actually someone with a gun. It was, it was this, someone was like reacting to, the sermon that was that that was being had, um, but yeah, everyone's been super paranoid about yeah. every stuff, all this kind of stuff, as as they should be. So, so sorting through, sorting through all this stuff is very complicated and uh, not a great time because it's not it's not fun, um, and we shouldn't have to do it. But it sucks. <sighs> I do think it's also worth noting that uh, the police did not stop. Uh, I I I know specifically they did not stop the one in the church. Um, the the uh, the past yeah. a pastor oh, wow. uh, a pastor uh, hit the hit, hit the him with a fucking with a chair. chair yeah hit him with a steel chair and yeah then they, and then they hog tied him with an extension mm -hmm. cord and then the police came which, which is so um, dope um I'm sorry yeah, they were ever in that position but they should that's, never have to be in that position yeah. but it turns uh, out more and more people are having to do stuff it, themselves yeah, because it, it it's not also the first time that a mass shooter has been stopped by someone hitting them with a chair. If I'm not mistaken, that's how the Gifford shooter was stopped eventually, or part of how he was stopped is somebody fucking decked him with a chair. It's um, yeah, it's really useful. Works. Yeah. yeah, it's really useful yeah. to have something beyond just your limbs. Yeah, um, if someone is trying to shoot you with a gun, ideally you get away. But if you can't get away, trying to hit them in the face with something heavy is certainly a, a choice that has saved a number of people's lives. God, what, what an absolutely dog shit country! It's like, not a great country. When I, oh. you know, I, I noted earlier, anyone trying to sell you like simple solutions, and I mentioned gun control on that, which is not to say that like the outrageously easy, how how ridiculously easy it is to get any kind of gun in this country. Obviously, that's a factor in these shootings. My my um, 
hesitance to take gun control as a, if you'll forgive the term, magic bullet to fix any of this is, number one, the sheer number of guns that are already propagated. Number two, the fact that a lot of gun control measures boil down to making it harder for poor people to get guns, and neither of these shootings seem to have been poor people shooting up um, folks. And uh, just also the fact that while some states are capable of passing additional gun control, number one, New York's basically done everything it's constitutional to do, re restricting gun ownership. Um, and federally, Biden and their Dems can't protect uh, Roe v. Wade. They're sure as shit not going to pass any federal. And that's uh, specifically what measures. these people want as well. Like yeah. they're specifically doing yeah. this to get this stuff started so that it increases political yeah. tensions. Whether or not. To agree with my fundamental claim, you don't have to – you can believe that if gun control were to be passed, it could be the solution, but it's not going to be. And so, like, as as regards those of us trying to survive, um, we have to look in other directions because you're not going to get an assault weapons ban. It's just not happening. Yeah, I mean, I uh, the one good I, – I, I, I don't want to say good thing, but – it has been uh, nice to see people slowly uh, dropping the whole like lone wolf terminology. Yes, that is a positive development because these are not, not fucking lone wolves. It's not a lone wolf. wolf. It's, it's part of a very – it's a part of an intentional effort to cause these things to happen. The, it's the, part, the, the groups may be decentralized, but they are not lone yeah, wolves by any stretch yeah. of they the are, imagination. But they are, yeah, they are decentralized and acephalous, but they are deeply, deeply sophisticated and connected. Yeah. Just and not – in a way you can drone strike easily. Well, yeah. And, and I think I, I, I'm, I would have some target suggestions. Garrison. <laughs> anyway, get an IFAC, mm-hmm. uh, do stop the bleed. Get an IFAC, and, do stop rem- the bleed. And don't, don't feed into their propaganda in the way that they feed want. Into their propaganda. Um, organize with folks in your neighborhood. This and sucks. Yay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, kids, adults, boys and girls, and individuals of non-binary or other gender identities, uh, cats who happen to be listening in, um, Airwolf, the helicopter, if you're listening in, everybody, every sentient creature listening, you know, uh, I do believe that things can get better. So part of that is not letting the the crimes that these the things that these people do like part of the purpose of an attack like this is to make people feel hopeless and overwhelmed it's to black pill you you know to 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 utilize some of their terminology so the way to fight against it is among other things if you're talking about immediate things you can do uh go out and do something nice to help people yeah um, and you know i i would say like as, as a sort of like one brief last note, like, yeah, like in Taiwan, they overthrew the dictatorship and oh, hey, it turns out people stopped getting assassinated by the KMT mm-hmm. in American soil. So, you know, over overthrow your governments and you too mm-hmm. can make peace with your enemies. Yeah. Yeah. Overthrow your government, overthrow another government. You know, yeah. it's all good. It's all good, baby. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? 
why did the internet choose them, and what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hello, everyone. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, the podcast about things falling apart and sometimes how we can put them back together. Uh, today, it's uh, me, Garrison, uh, Chris, our producer Sophie, and uh, Andrew joins us once again. Yay! I love that guy. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome Hello. to another episode of Andrew talking about whatever he feels like talking about. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Today's episode, um, I am happy to announce that I finally, finally finished Dawn of Everything by David Wenker. It took it took a while, you know, there were some points in time, some weeks that just went by where I didn't even like make a dent. Um, you know, life got in the way and stuff, but I finally, finally finished it. And now I get to talk about it and say, you know, with some authority that I've read Dawn of Everything. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's a very dense book, but um it was hundred percent worth it. I mean, there's some critiques that I've been digging into by some um authors in the field. Um, and so I highly recommend people look for critiques as well, not just, you know, taking it and consuming it wholesale, but the, in addition to those critiques, like armed with those critiques, um, such as by people like, um, what is politics on YouTube and also a couple of academic writers as well. I think you could get a lot out of the book and I certainly have. Yeah, this is a, this is a, this is a very good book and I'm, I'm excited to talk about it because I read it like, oh, it was a while ago now. Like, it's like six, five months ago or something. Oh wow! I've, I've been like <laughs> I feel to now. talk about it. I've been like waiting for the chance. I've I've been tr- I've been I've been picking up bits and pieces of it, but unfortunately, my book list to get through is uh, way too long at the moment. So I've not <laughs> been able to actually dive fully into the text itself. Um, but it is definitely on my list after I get through my. 20 other books I need to read for my job. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, at least we get to read books for a living. Or yeah, something indeed. adjacent to that. Um, and I mean, it is a difficult book, I would say, to like discuss in its entirety. And I didn't, I don't intend to, not to read any parade or anything, Chris, but I don't intend to talk about the entire yeah, no. book, you know, because that's like, <laughs> several so hundred long. pages <laughs> yeah you know and each chapter covers like so so much um but i actually wanted to talk about chapter four in particular um where the authors explore the concept and the origins in a sense of cultures um in one particular segment i mean there are a lot of mysteries of the upper paleolithic that we don't know right i mean that's why they're mysteries um but, you know, we've come to learn, you know, through the course of the book that, you know, this assumption that everything was just these small, tight-knit bands, um, and that was just the entirety of the human social arrangement until states, you know, at least it's new to the layman to realize that this is not necessarily the case, you know, um, that there is a lot more um, political, structural, you know, diversity in that time period. We don't know at that point in time, you know, what languages people were speaking. You know, of course, linguists have been able to like reconstruct like proto languages and stuff. And I mean, I'm just a hobby linguist, just like I'm a hobby everything else. But I think it's been really cool to see how linguists are just able to do that. Like, can we just take a second 
to realize that like linguists are able to take scraps of existing languages and just kind of piece them together to get a sense of like how they're related. Like, how do you all do that? Um, <laughs> um but we, there's a lot we don't know, right? We don't know about their language, we don't know about their myths, you know, um, their conceptions of the soul, what their favorite foods were. I mean, we know they ate, but we don't know what like Joe Skeleton thought about his breakfast that morning. But what we do know is that, you know, from the Swiss Alps to Outer Mongolia, in the Upper Paleolithic, people were using a lot of the same tools, um, playing a lot of similar musical instruments, carving similar, rather interesting female figurines, um, wearing similar ornaments and conducting similar funeral rites. And there's also reason to believe that people actually traveled a lot more than we would expect them to do. And tra- actually traveled longer distances than we would expect for that time period. I mean, we don't have, they didn't have rather, you know, like cars or or chariots or trains or planes or anything like that. So to think that these long distance um, journeys were occurring, you know, places like Australia or in like North America is just really interesting to think about. Yeah, I was wondering if you can talk about like one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this is the way that they talk about culture areas where you have these yes. like yes yeah yeah you have these like very large I mean like, like almost like like half continent sized areas where people are speaking similar languages like the same language and you have these like you have like these clan structures that are like you know you 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 can go from like. You can go from like Missouri and you can end up in like Mississippi and you'll be in a place where they still have like, you know, the, the sort of like four basic like clan lodges are still the same. And you'll meet people who are like right. from your clan. And he, he has this really interesting line about how like sort of counterintuitively like the world's gotten like the world, like even even when there was like people spread over geographic distance, like the world sort of got larger as technology progressed and not sort of like smaller in the way that people sort of think about it because like in, in, I don't know, instead of there being these sort of like mega like culture areas, you can go from one place to another and you'll, there'll be people who speak the same language and you'll, you can sort of slot into the like systems that are there. You suddenly have this like incredible diversity of stuff. Right. Right. So, I mean, Specific to like North America, you know, um, where you had all these different clan structures. We usually tend to think of, um, you know, these groups as, and you know, especially like your immediate relations with people that, you know, it's like close skin, family, that kind of thing. Um, but there's actually, at least in some studies of hunter-gatherers, there's some suggestion that their composition can be quite cosmopolitan. So, you know, you have these these groups and biological relations might only make up a small percentage of like total membership. They're actually drawing from a wide pool of individuals of a larger stretch of area. I know not all of them even speak necessarily the f- same first language. Um, there's this YouTuber, uh, Indigenous Anarchist YouTuber named Twin Rabbit. And he had this excellent, excellent video. I need to rewatch it on Plains Sign Language, which is this... Um, method of communication that indigenous Americans um, used across, you know, the plains 
to conduct trade and diplomacy and discussions, even if they didn't share the same language. Um, in Aboriginal Australia, people were able to travel halfway across the continent, moving across people who spoke entirely different languages and still find, you know, camps that had people of, you know, their same totemic moiety, you know, and those people were to be treated like their brothers and sisters, you know, so like no hanky panky, but, you know, they had this, this, you know, cross continental bond of like hospitality. From the Great Lakes, you know, to Louisiana bayous, you could find settlements of people speaking entirely, entirely separate languages unrelated to their own. And yet still you'll find, you know, bear clans or elk clans or beaver clans that were obliged to host and feed them, you know? Um, and we could only really guess as to like what kind of systems were like and how those systems might have worked 40,000 years ago, you know, in the upper Paleolithic. But what we do see with the, you know, similarities in material um, uniformities and stuff um, of these different tools and musical instruments and stuff suggests that there might be a bit of a similar system in place at that time. Roughly around like 12,000 BC, we start seeing like new pottery, you know, getting dropped. We start to see the outlines of more specific cultures in specific areas. New stone grinding tools, uh, new ways of preparing and eating wild grains and roots and other vegetables. Um, different ways of chopping, slicing, grating, grinding, soaking, draining, boiling, and storing, smoking, and preserving meats, plant foods, and fish. And so then we start to see something that um, really brings people together, and that is cuisine. And cuisine, you know, being the birth of cuisine, being the birth of like really more specific cultures. Um, you know, the kinds of soups and porridges and stews and broths and basically what they were talking about was the way that people who like wake up and eat fish stews every morning tend to you know develop a different sense of themselves in relation to their world compared to people who might wake up in the morning and eat some porridge with like berries and wild oats you know and then from there they start to develop different tastes in in clothing you know in in dancing and drugs and hairstyles um i remember later on in the book um, the Davids point out that some indigenous um, Native American groups were actually known for specific hairstyles. And I kind of knew that based on the fact that, you know, we tend to associate Mohawks with people, you know, Mohawk hairstyle, Mohawk people. But I didn't realize that, you know, other groups also had their own kind of like culturally specific hairstyles, right? And there's also like courtship rituals and forms of kinship and styles of rhetoric and so of course you still have these large cultural areas in the Mesolithic larger than some nation states but you're starting to see a bit more specificity and a bit more diversity in, in shorter um, spans of area if we look at now for example where you know we have in the Amazon all these different languages and cultures that coexist merely kilometers from each other I think the overall trend um, of human cultures, you know, over the past tens of thousands of years has been the opposite of marginalization. 
And it makes me think a bit about the whole concept of the nation state and how it tries to like bring people together to this like one narrow conception of what it means to be, you know, X, Y, Z. And how humanity naturally seems to like resist that and naturally seems to like split off from that. Like even when you have situations with the forceful spread of English in, you know, the Caribbean colonies, you still see like a diversity springing up with a bunch of different unique creoles and dialects making the language something different. You know, if not for the enforcement of language standardization through the, you know, school system, I think we would actually see an even more rapid um, explosion of, you know, linguistic diversity developing out of these creoles and dialects. You know, like a couple centuries from now, you know, Patois and Trinidadian Creole and British English may be entirely incompatible, even in Britain itself. You know, you might have a case where London English and, I don't know, Sussex English or whatever starts to sound like entirely different. I mean, you already have that with accents, but just to see how, you know, even in short spaces of time, as short as a century or two, because, for example, Trinidad um, was not always an English-speaking colony. Um, We actually spoke French Creole for most of our history. And only in the 19th century did we have that period of Anglicization where English was, you know, brought in. Um, And to see that in that short space of time, in that handful of centuries, that, you know, Trinidad already has its own unique English-based Creole. You know, it's just fascinating to see. Um, There's something really interesting to me about the way this process plays out because it's, it's, it's almost like, okay, so you, you have this sort of like, like you have this period in what is the Mesolithic, um, all the period names are blanking out of my head, but like, like 40, <laughs> so, yeah. So like you have this period where you have kind of like, you, you have a lot of cultural standardization, like spread across a long period, like a, a bunch of places and it's used sort of as a mutual aid thing. It allows people to travel because you can go to a place and know that like there will be people who are like you there and they will take care of you. And, and it's interesting to me, it's like, okay, so this breaks apart as sort of like these these new cultures, like as, as people develop local cultures around like food and around just like, Graeber has this thing that he loves talking about These he's been talking about for ages called uh, schismogenesis, which is like you have two people you know, it's like, I think, I think the, his original example is like, you have two people who are arguing with each other, and they, like, disagree minorly over, like, one thing, and then by the end of the argument, like, they're, they've, they've taken, like, completely mutually opposed identities to each other based on, like, right. an incredibly minor disagreement, and you get this with, yeah, you get, like, you get cultures that sort of, like, define themselves against each other, and, like, they have things that they like and things that they don't like, and it's interesting to me that, that you see, you see the state trying to sort of, like, reimpose that kind of, like, like 40,000 year old cultural homogeneity on all of these places that are like incredibly not homogenous, but they're doing it for like the opposite reason. They're doing it because they need standardization in order to sort of like make their, make their bureaucratic like systems work better and make their sort of like, yeah. Seen like, like a stage kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also like, like, I mean, this, this was a huge thing. Everyone in the, in the, like the early, the late nineties and early two thousands thought that like the extent of capitalism on the around the globe was going to make make everything exactly the same. There's only going to be one culture, and that like kind of really didn't happen. But there was this real sort of 
I don't know, like the, 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 there was this real sort of fear that that it wasn't just going to be the nation state spreading like homogenization, but that, like capitalism was going to sort of like spread homogenization. And I guess I guess the thing that they wound up doing instead was like figuring out that you could just sell everyone in their individual cultural niche, which to some it's extent, not, yeah, because like we see yeah. a McDonald's in the U.S. and a McDonald's in Bangladesh and a McDonald's in Japan, and they sell all of the same McDonald's stuff, but they've also like sort of specified their, you know, specific country. Yeah, we have the worst version. The U.S. has the worst version of it, by the way. Like, <laughs> the the uh, uh, the like Ta- Taiwan has one that has like they have like rice uh, sticky rice patties. It's oh, it's so much better than. Yeah, I mean, I will say though, if I did end up traveling to Taiwan, I, McDonald's would probably be the last place I would want to go. <laughs> yeah, we we wound up eating there, and we we were we had to catch a plane, and so we wound up eating like um, Taiwanese Taiwanese McDonald's. Yeah, That's Taiwanese cool. McDonald's airport food because we had like five minutes. It was a oh, you know what they say about airplane food. um but yeah that's exactly what i was about to get into actually the whole idea of cultural differentiation you know um and this this tendency that humans have to subdivide and to distinguish themselves from their neighbors and i mean it's natural to assume that you know this differentiation comes from like differences in like language you know with you know language splitting off over the centuries and people associating with their native language and ethnicity but that really tell the full story, you know? Like, for example, in Northern California in the early 20th century, the ethnolinguistic map uh, had really a jumble of languages that drew from entirely different language families, you know, as distant from one another as, like, Arabic and Tamil and Portuguese. And yet, these groups still shared, you know, broad similarities. You know, how they went about gathering and processing food, you know, their most important re- religious rituals, how they organize their political life. Um, and they also managed to keep themselves distinct. You know, you had the Yurok and the Hoopa and the Karok and so forth. And I mean, to some extent, these identities did map onto linguistic differences, but their neighbors who spoke different languages still had more in common with them than people who came from their same language family in another part of North America. Of course, you know, European colonization had like a severe impact on like how Native Americans were distributed. Um, But we still tend to see this trend of how like these modern nation states, they'd went around at the time to, you know, order populations into these neat ethno-linguistic groups. You know, this idea that the world should be divided into these like homogenous units with their own history and, everyone has a claim to like a certain territory and all that. It's, I mean, it's really a, a concept that is born out of this mythology of the nation state. And, you know, of course we had to be real careful before we project those kind of uniformities back in time. Yeah. It's, it's definitely really like 200 years old. Like it's, it's pretty young. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But um, there are some concerns, you know, with the concept of culture areas, because that, whole notion of culture areas came out of North American museums who wanted to arrange their stolen artifacts to illustrate their theories of the different stages of human adaptation, you know, like lower, lower savagery and upper savagery and lower, lower barbarism and so on. And so they had to determine whether they were going to organize these artifacts based on like language family or regional clusters, um, 
or some sort of like traced history of 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 regional of ancient migrations, right? Eventually, they realized that you know this way of organizing into regional clusters seemed to work best where the art and technology of different eastern woodlands tribes had some very similar um, things in common compared to like trying to group people based on like say the Athabascan language or all the people who relied on fishing or all the people who cultivated maize. Um, and they were able to find similar patterns in the Neolithic villages of Central Europe, you know, finding these regional clusters of domestic life and art and ritual. And so like this whole cultural area concept was kind of a way of pushing back against this way of, you know, talking about human history that like ranked populations into higher or lower anything. You know, this this idea of, of claiming that, you know, people were of a certain superior genetic stock and had reached a certain advanced level of technological evolution. And so rather this there's been a, there was a shift in anthropological focus to look at the diffusion of more cultural traits like ceramics and sweat lodges and you know the treatment of young men or certain sports. Um and so they wanted to try to understand how these different tribes of certain region came to share this mesh of culture traits. So one of the people who were thinking on this, you know, whole culture traits cluster idea um, was a guy named Boas, right? And he wanted to figure out why it is that like geography seemed to define the circulation of ideas, you know, with like mountains and deserts forming these natural barriers and how basically the diffusion within those regions was basically historical accident. Other people were hypothesizing that there was some sort of like way to eventually develop a kind of a natural science, developing how and even predicting the ebb and flow of styles, habits, and social forms. And eventually Marcel Mauss pulls up, you know, and he's basically taught he basically like writes a bunch of essays on nationalism and civilization. And he says, basically, this whole idea of cultural diffusion is nonsense because it's based on a false assumption. And the false assumption is that the movement of people, technologies and ideas is some sort of rarity, something unusual. Instead, Mouse argues that like people in past times traveled even more than people do today. And it's just that when these people interact with people of other cultures, and they see their cultural traits, they reflect on that and find a way to relate that to their own cultures, right? So like people who were traveling back then, obviously all of them, you know, were aware of basketry, you know, or, or, or featherworks or whatever the case may be that other people were using a couple miles away. Same to be said for like, certain drum rhythms or certain, you know, games or like, for example, he spent some time focusing on the distribution of the ball games around the Pacific ocean, around the Pacific rim, um, from Japan to New Zealand to California. And what he realized is that whether people pick up certain ideas, certain traits from other cultures comes down to 
how they want to be defined against their neighbors, against their closest neighbors. The question becomes less about why certain culture traits spread, but why other culture traits didn't. Because if you are aware of all the things that your neighbors and stuff are doing, all these foreign customs and arts and technologies, I mean, we know that the Silk Road, for example, even if we talk about the Silk Road, you know, we had a Silk Road going from China all the way into Europe and all across the Silk Road, all across Central Asia and West Asia. And despite that constant, you know, sharing of ideas, not every idea that, you know, came from China or came from Persia or... I don't know if Persia was around during the Silk Road, but you know what I'm saying? Like not every idea that was along the Silk Road, everyone necessarily picked up on, even if it was a technology that might have benefited them because cultures are effectively structures of refusal. So for example, um, there's this guy on YouTube, um, Religion for Breakfast. He did a video recently on the pork taboo in certain cultures and certain religions, right? And one of the things he pointed out was that the taboo tends to be strengthened in times of like repression. So for example, or in times of cultural um, definition. So for example, he was pointing out that in the period of Roman conquest, the Jewish people were more inclined to define themselves as, you know, against the consumption of pork compared to the Romans. You know, for example, the Chinese are the people who use chopsticks. You know, they don't use knives and forks. Or you know, the Thai are the people who use spoons and so on. You know, it could just be say, said that, you know, it's like aesthetics, like styles of art or music or table manners. Of course, those things won't differ. But even like technologies that have like certain adaptive or utilitarian benefits might still be re- might still be refused by people who might even benefit from them. Like for example, the Athabascans in Alaska refuse to use Inuit kayaks, despite the fact that they are a lot better suited for the environment than their own boats. And the Inuit, for example, don't use Athabascan snowshoes. Um, at least in the time that. Marcel Mouse is writing. And then, of course, this is a self-conscious process. You know, this is a process where a debate and discussion of all these different customs would have been occurring. You know, for example, in the Chinese courts, when different foreign styles and customs would, you know, come into the lands, there would be debates and arguments put forward by, you know, the kings and their advisors and their vassals you know, discussing, you know, whether they would ride the horses or drive chariots or adopt like the Manchu dress codes and and, and customs. And so societies, Mao said, live by borrowing from each other, but they define themselves by the refusal of borrowing than by its acceptance. The question of how culture areas form and how cultures split off is definitely a political one. The decision to adopt um, a certain form of agriculture or to cultivate a certain crop more specifically or to adopt a certain style of dress 
it's not just like a matter of like mere utility of mere or caloric advantage or material efficiency or it's also a reflection on a questioning of the values that that group of people holds or purport to hold who they consider themselves to be i like to think about the development of cultures you know i like to think about how our ancestors or distant ancestors even considered themselves you know it's easy to just fall into this trap because it's a very common cultural trope that you know once you go before the invention of writing or whatever all of our ancestors are just like ooga booga cavemen kind of thing but to think of them as self-conscious and politically um conscious politically considerate thoughtful actors not you know static or passive props um is just i think it's it's i think it's just very cool <laughs> i think it's very cool and i think that we should keep you know these developments these this recognition in mind as we you know in the modern time look to try to transform the cultures we live under and to try to develop new values new values of like anti-authoritarianism and anti-capitalism and of you know a greater priority on mutual aid and on egalitarian social relations yeah i th- i think there's a lot of very interesting political consequences of of thinking about this because like i think there there's there's sort of like two tendencies that that we sort of get stuck in when we think about like our social structures which is there's there's the there's one which is the sort of like i guess it's called like capitalist realism which is the assumption that like nothing else could possibly like this is the only system that works nothing else can possibly exist and that's unproductive and you know you go back and you look at like any other culture or society and it's like well no like there's there's like <laughs> an unbelievable like nearly infinite number of ways you can organize your society but then i think i think the second one is that like yeah if 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 you look at this sort of cultural diffusion and cultural refusal stuff you 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 see a lot of examples of people doing stuff that like under sort of like classical economic or like sociological laws they shouldn't be doing right like there, there's no reason why you shouldn't use a more efficient canoe if you're in a place of the, of the part of the world that's like extremely hard to survive in right and and i think that there's this tendency to sort of like reduce culture and reduce just all of the ways that our social and political systems function to these sort of like oh they're the product of these like abstract historical forces and like ah it's all like te- it's all determined by technology and like how you farm and stuff and that's just not true <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not like, to say that not. material conditions aren't, you know, very important in understanding, um, you know, how these cultures develop. And that's one part of um, not everything that I found was a bit lacking. I think that not all the time those dots were clearly connected, um, I'd say. But I do think people put too much stock in solely material and materialist um explanations and that kind of ends up precluding or leaving out 
the more messy human realm of explanation. Yeah, and, and I, I think I think part of why this happens is that like it, it's much if if you assume everyone is like behaving according to historical forces or like the thing that they're trying to do is like maximize um they're trying to like maximize their utility or they're trying to like maximize the amount of calories they have it, it, that that's a very easy thing to like new like think about numerically right like it's a very easy thing to refuse the numbers it's extremely difficult to refuse the numbers like to reduce to like reduce to numbers a society that is like i'm going to i'm going to intentionally make my life harder for myself because this is the way we do things and we've decided we don't want to do things like other people or we've decided that we have some kind of political value that we have that makes it such that we're going to like induce difficulty into our lives and like that i don't know like that that kind of stuff the the the, the fact that culture is not just a sort of like superstructure that gets that's like a product of like some kind of economic base like that that is very important and something that gets ignored or downplayed constantly that i think i don't yeah and like i think like yeah i think i think you can argue that don't everything like maybe goes too far in the other direction but i'm i'm sort of okay with that just because we've been so far on the side of like everything is historical forces for so long that you need something to remind people that like societies make conscious political choices and not only have they made conscious political choices for like tens of thousands of years uh like we also can make conscious political choices that yeah. are not just sort of like pure reflections of like however many tons of iron have been extracted and like what percentage of like workers are currently working in hospitals versus like making cookies or something right thank you for that ooo analysis chris really <laughs> i i agree <laughs> That that's a joke like twelve people will get. I I I love you if you if you understand that joke. Also, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, you can wrap it up, Carson. Um, all of this has been very fascinating. What what I've learned the most is that I need to finish reading all my books so that I can read the dawn of everything um i know i i like i like got it for my dad for christmas because um because i i knew that it would be uh at least i think i did my memory could be i could actually be wrong i could have only intended to get it for my dad for christmas and then forgotten to actually get it but i've been meaning it to i've been meaning to both buy it for myself and get it for other people um because i've heard a lot of interesting things about the book so it is definitely on my list uh, it's been a pleasure listening to uh, y'all uh, discuss it. Um, Andrew, where can if people want to check out more of uh, your your work, where could where could they go about that? Right. So you can still find me on Twitter at underscore C and Drew when I'm not um, hiding. And you could also find me on YouTube. Andrewism, youtube.com slash Andrewism where I post videos about also stuff, random stuff, you know, that I'm thinking about politics, history, all that jazz. A, a, a few days ago, as of time of recording, um, uh, Andrew put out a, a wonderful video on uh, solar punk stuff. Um, I've no idea when this episode will air, so this it's probably been like a month or two or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, definitely check out uh, the Andrewism channel. It's one of my favorite spots to... Uh, watch something when I feel like I can't put any words on the page. I I go watch your things because it's very helpful. 
Thank um, you. Yeah. So that does it for us today. Uh, you can find us at Twitter and on Twitter and Instagram at Happen Here Pod, Coolzone Media. You can find me posting about hyper objects and liminal spaces at Hungry Bowtie. And I heard that you have a Twitter, Chris. Yeah, it's at itmechr3. Uh, you can find me mostly complaining about other people who are <laughs> doing communism wrong. I Love guess that's that most for, of what I post about. <laughs> Love that for you. Uh, uh, you too will be able to differentiate between the 16 different... Actually, that's not even true. There's not even 16. There used to be... Long ago in a galaxy far, far away, I made a decision, and that was that uh, I was going to sacrifice my brain to understand the different kinds of Maoism, and if you too want to understand why it still exists and all 20,000 varieties of them, uh, yeah, go there. If you don't want to do that, do not. You'll be happier. Well, what a ringing endorsement. Uh, <laughs> goodbye, everyone. Go, uh, I don't know. Oh, should we, should, we, should, we plug, should we plug the other shows that we yeah. have? I guess everyone's tuned out at this point. I hope they've all stopped the podcast player. <laughs> okay. So I think, I think, uh, yes, go some... will be free. <laughs> yes. Go outside and be free there. Can, you can, you can edit that into something that is more concise. Sorry, Daniel slash Ian. I don't, know I don't care. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. Understand now, is a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. 
As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's... Well, it, 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 it is the podcast. It could happen here. But for once, it is not about the world falling apart. It is entirely about putting it back together again. Uh, and, and joining me to talk about putting it back together again is uh, zero of the other people who are normally on the podcast. But I'm joined by Shannon and John Hieronymus, who are part of the team of organizers working on the dual power gathering. Uh, Shannon, John, welcome. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. Hey. So I guess... The first part of the dual power gathering is dual power, and I think we should walk through what actually that is and what our sort of visions for it look like, because, I mean, I know we've talked about this on the show before, but that was a very, very long time ago, by which I mean, like, probably only, like, seven months, but, you know, feel, feel, feels like ancient history. So, yeah, I guess, do you two want to talk about what dual power is and how... How to do. Yeah, sure. I'm going to stop trying to think about what happened seven months ago. And I can't <laughs> try to have that. Okay. Remember you said that. I was just like, oh, wow. Okay. No, never mind. Um, so dual power. John, how about I uh, go ahead and share with our audience well, what is sort of the poetic language that we have up on the website from the, the organizers. And then we can kind of like break it down and talk about it. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that works cool. for me. All right. So uh, the website text is such. Uh, dual power is a way to imagine the moment just before our movements converge as the possible becomes the actual. When the seeds of social transformation we have sown for generations bloom, when the old world begins to wither and new worlds can be born, is a way of thinking about how we got to that moment and beyond it. Dual power is the project of building self-determination, mutual aid, solidarity, and direct democracy in our communities 
by creating spaces that empower us all and from which new emancipatory institutions can emerge. It's so pretty. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what does that mean? <laughs> so what does that mean? Um, first off, I want to say like a shout out to I, a lot of people have been working on this vision of what dual power is for uh, years and years now. And that includes uh, a lot of groups um, that we are either in conversation with or have been taking inspiration from. Um, one of the biggest, I think, most developed groups uh, that's uh, doing that work is Cooperation Jackson, Jackson, Jackson Mississippi. Um, and I... Uh, I think the goal is I, people went out oftentimes when people just like hear dual power, if they don't have any other um, context for it, but they are maybe from the left, they've heard about this moment in uh, the Russian revolution when there were these two competing like, uh, you know, bases of power in like uh, Russian society while they're undergoing this like revolutionary change. And, uh, Lenin wrote a, like a pamphlet about it, calling it the dual power and looked at it as like a thing that needed to be like overcome by, you know, workers in Russia um, to like establish a worker's state, um, which it kind of outlined in a book called State and Revolution. And but when we look at what they were describing, we kind of look at this as a thing that emerges in any time when there's a social revolution kind of unfolding in a society where you have various classes who are like changing like social relations. So uh, workers, peasants, um, different groups of people who like have like a class have come together around a class interest and overthrowing their oppression. And they, they have to go through stages of building their collective power, their collective identity, their, um, and their, uh, kind of like overall strategic movement in a particular direction. Um, and they create this tension between the existing state order and a newly emerging, like, uh, like social revolution that's like overthrowing, challenging, uh, and overthrowing that like, um, power. So, that being said, we want to ground that. We want to ground that a little bit in yeah. a like less historicized uh, context or whatever. We could say maybe that it's the work that we're doing to build up the institutions and relational structures that we need to care for ourselves and each other um, as we move through uh, sort of like different states of um, like institutional organization in the society, right? So when we're thinking about how do we meet our basic needs together in ways that are not dependent on the oppressive institutions that we're trying to overthrow, we're talking about dual power. Yeah, and it's like anytime working class folks, and I'd say like in a broad definition, communities people who aren't necessarily working but like depend on like uh taking care of each other or who do the work of reproducing every you know society um basically build their own independent power like uh to like to be able to fight back and to challenge the you know the status quo 
So like, there's a lot of things that are kind of percolating that we've been like, uh, that have been happening in North America that takes inspiration from areas of the global South, um, but also our own homegrown like um, traditions. Um, so that could mean anything from like your local mutual aid network to uh, your local tenant union to like a rank and file um, union of like Amazon workers or teachers or care workers, um, you know, whose existence puts them in conflict with the state capital um, and like patriarchy, settler colonial relations, um, you know, like indigenous water protectors, um, folks who are building up places where the more developed it becomes, the more it kind of builds its own momentum and you have spaces that are like autonomous, fully like autonomous regions from like state power and to begin to like pick apart at capital and like reconfigure our um, like relations of like how we make things and do things and take care of each other in like fundamental ways. And we have lots of beautiful examples of this from the like organizing history, not even that long ago. And people will be familiar with some of the black Panther programs or some of the programs that were integrated into the uh, farm workers movement and some of the programs that were put together by the anarcho-feminists uh, who were trying to uh, support women's bodily autonomy and secure abortion rights through things like um, mutual aid healthcare and, and things like that. So we'll see there's like a lot of really beautiful examples uh, of this work happening over time around successful organizing movements. And we're all really excited about what's going on now. And we want to see that just to sort of come together and flourish. I think it's important to think about dual power as something that's like, I, I don't know, like, I, I think there's a lot of people who look at it as sort of like dual power is planting a garden. And it's like, I mean, sort of, yes, but like, there's, you know, there, 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 there's there's sort of two components of it, right? There's there's this sort of, there's a defensive component and an offensive component. There, there's a component that's about taking care of each other. And there is a component that is attack, right? There's, there's, there's a component that is the people who are preventing us from taking care of each other need to be stopped from doing that. And so... Yeah, I think, I I think it's important to yeah, think about different kinds of, like, different kinds of institutions that you would not normally think of as doing the same thing as being part of the same struggle. And yeah, I, I guess that brings us to what you two and a lot of other people have been working on for. God, it's just been this is this has been in the works for a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah, which 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 is the which is the the this uh dual power gathering and yeah i guess you should talk about what what that is because sure. yeah yeah well you know we've all been sitting around the past couple of years dreaming about being together <laughs> and so i think this is kind of the fruit of that dream right coming up at the end of july uh we're inviting everyone out to the indiana dunes for a camping trip uh and during that time, um, we're hoping to see a collaboratively produced uh, event that incorporates everything that the participants can bring to it, which we know far exceeds the uh, sort of even the scope and vision of the organizing body. So we're like really trying to um, 
just create a space for people to come together who are interested in these ideas, who have various levels of experience working with it that will be valuable to everybody from people who are brand new to this stuff and just want to learn more about it to people who have, have been doing it for years, for decades even. Um, and yeah, that's sort of, sort of the the underlying ambition of it is to get people together in space. So, you know, a lot of us have been to these kinds of events before and felt like the most important thing that we got out of that was the relationships that we were able to build and the people that we were able to meet that we could then carry on ongoing dialogues with and that we could find inspiration uh, in, in those dialogues and in those connections that would birth new projects that, you know, we don't, yet know are even possible. And so this is kind of, at least for me, like that's the really important and exciting force of the, of the, the plan. <laughs> yeah. I think that like they're cool. The, some of the things about this, I think are really like, it's been like really a collaborative effort to come up with this thing. Like we had the discussions about this is a thing that need that we thought need to happen because at the end of like by the end of the middle of 2021, we we're like, look, clearly we've all been through so many different experiences over the last 10, 15, 20 years at this point. Some of us are getting to be elders and um, <laughs> we uh, and we need to like. Um, it feels like it's now is an excellent, a, a really great time to have like a actual conversation about where we where we're com- where we are uh, where we're coming from and where we're going and how do we translate these experiences into like networks of like trusting relationships and sharing um, a sharing of all this knowledge is like we need to debrief like the like the past 5 years i think in particular have been like it's like crammed it feels like, you know, the whole saying, like some, some years, nothing happens and some, you know, and some months, decades happen, mm-hmm. paraphrasing or whatever. <laughs> and it's like so much stuff has come, we've all gone through so many things and come to like, uh, and we're seeing people who didn't have like maybe a, a stance on various political things or are like seeing their communities torn apart by like the, the real lived experience of like climate change and want to and need to do something about it that sort of thing like bringing in people who have lots of experience with people who have maybe are just now figuring things out and really kind of like using and taking this as an opportunity to maybe to generate new knowledge so that we're going to be like kind of like clarifying what we've gone through and where we're heading and um get people like in the same space who like my as a like i do a lot of union shit so i'm always thinking about how do i get like rank and file union radicals in the same space as like a uh like a neighborhood abolitionist or a tenant union organizer or a community land trust and getting all these like different groups because together and then like thinking about how they overlap and support and build off of each other because we I think the operating theory of many of people who are involved in this is that every context is different where we're organizing, but many there are many kind of principles that can kind of translate across contexts, but the context will shape 
very like, like the, I was just talking with one of the organizers who's like 20 minutes away over in Northwest Indiana and you're like in Gary and you know, uh, those areas and their context for building something like a, an ecosystem of dual power organizations is going to be very different from my context where I am like down the street from this big, uh, global, um, center of uh capital that's like university of chicago and like and it's doing all in my neighborhood's being gentrified by two billion dollar corporations and i've got a big nurse union whereas they're in the middle of like a neighbor a community that's being actively divested and destroyed like just like eaten away at by like because capital is just pulling out and has been doing that for basically as long as we've all been on right, this earth at the same time, y'all are dealing with the same like biosphere complications and yes. climate change implications. And yes. so, yeah, we're thinking about the ways in which like the kinds of affiliations that make sense for us to be successful in our projects are like, you know, they're not just, they're not just local. They're not just national. They're not just continental. There's like a lot of different things that are going on there. And that the only way for us to really like sort out who uh, we need to be in coalition with on any particular issue is to know everybody uh, and to try to understand better their their specific contacts and their specific experiences. And I think there's like, you know, I think, you know, to, to John's point about, you know, how much has changed in the last uh, you know handful of years or whatever. I think one thing that we've all come away from is the pace of change is pretty humbling, you know? Um, I think we definitely all, we got a, we got we took in a bit of the of humility around around that what is it that we actually need to do we are definitely not prepared for it <laughs> you know and it doesn't matter how many decades we've been doing this organizing work we just are not ready uh, for how quickly things are changing right now and the only way for us to get ready is to make sure that we shore up and strengthen the networks of people that we can rely on to produce kind of positive interdependence um, as we move forward with the continued chaos that is the contemporary world. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then part of this is also like thinking about, um, because the way this is structured, this isn't just like a series of panel discussions where we've like the organizers have curated, like here you're going to listen to, you know, uh, so-and-so who's like, you know, a prominent tenant organizer or so-and-so who's like a prominent, like, uh, like, in like climate change direct action work, like the goal is, is that we like specifically chose a format and like officially it's called like, like an unconference. But the way I think of it is it's like, which, it, which comes out of tech, which I find kind of irritating, but that doesn't, but the, the core of the idea of the thing is, is that we're coming into this space and generating new knowledge not necessarily sitting there and receiving a bunch of knowledge from people who we designate as like movement leaders or experts. That doesn't mean that people who don't have a lot of experience and a lot of like skills aren't going to be there. It just means that we're going to be, because one of my things is popular education coming from the tradition of like Paulo Freire and like um, everybody learning together is mm -hmm. like, it's like taking those principles and kind of like, doing them in parallel in various circles where there'll be a circle here of like cooperative or, uh, organizers or people who want to get co-ops off the ground. There'll be a circle here of people doing land trust work. 
there'll be a circle here of like unionists. There'll be a, cir- a circle here of uh, people doing like abolition uh, work and or inter- or people who are interested in all those things are getting those sorts of things off the ground. And as they work through like a, like they present, tell stories, share ideas, do debriefs on like the various things that we've all been going through over, you know, whatever, how far back our timeline is, depending on how far, uh, which elders decide to uh, attend. Um, but then taking that knowledge with our facilitators and then being like, you know what, I think that these two conversations are happening kind of like in parallel would be better if they were merged together and beginning to kind of like build that sort of like, and so the idea isn't to necessarily come away with like a pre, like we're not setting up like a, like a predetermined set of conclusions for people. We believe, and based off of, we've been having monthly community calls for people who are going to be attending all the different uh, groups of folks who will be coming to this is going to be, I think like the depth of uh, experience is going to be really phenomenal. Um, And people coming from, we definitely have people confirmed who are coming from Canada, people who we may be having folks with experience the indigenous communities in, uh, in Mexico. We may be having, we're, I'm fairly confident we're going to have people who have like just come from areas like Northern Syria and Iraq um, and taking all these different ideas and experiences and then generating next, like coming to new conclusions maybe unexpected conclusions or things that we didn't quite, uh, that we weren't anticipating, but maybe coming, even asking new questions, yeah. right? Like this is a, a kind of, it's intended to be a prefigurative space for engaging with things where we don't know what the right answer is. And I think we all need to really sit with the fact that we do not have like a clear right solution to the problems that we're facing right now. Like I've been, uh, kind of pulling on the slogan a little is like no gods no masters no right answers you know just like (laughs) get used to it (laughs) we need to be more creative and we need to be more open to experimentation and you know there's just a lot of there's a lot of stuff that's going to be coming at us fast and you know this is a we, we hope this can be a space where we can kind of take some time to slowly get square with what it is we're going to have to be thinking about even if we don't know what to do exactly yet. So I had a, I had a really good experience where I was listening to like one of the, like a person who came out of act up uh, giving a talk in my, in my neighborhood. And she was saying, because we had had questions, is this going to be about a, a lot of theory? Are we going to be talking about a lot of abstract stuff? And um, this uh, organizer was like, you know, act up had no theory right? They did, they took action and the theory followed afterwards. And so the idea that we're like necessarily having coming to this with like the right answers already figured out is just not like something that I think is going to be a super generative discussion. The idea of coming up with like coming up with orientations and thinking about like where we are heading kind of in a general sense and then seeing how that unfolds and builds is, I think, um, a big key, a key aspect of what we're trying to do when we come to, uh, come together. Which is not July. to say, yeah, which is not to say that there won't be theory because that's not up to us. That's up to y'all. So, <laughs> you know, um, 
I probably, you know, like I, what I'm really interested in is having conversations about uh, like community mental health care, you know, and like for me, the theory is less interesting than, you know, like talking about what we actually need in the spaces that we work in. But that's, you know, that's where I'm coming from. And everybody else is coming at this from their own perspective, too. So I'm really excited to see what people bring to that space and what we can get out of it um, by just thinking that we all are contributing something constructive to that conversation. Well, and then also there's going to be a lot of discussion about like literal practical skills. Like, mm-hmm. here's how you like, here's how <laughs> you, uh, this has always been the perennial thing. This is how you pick a lock. This is how you, uh, this is how you organize comms at like, uh, at like a, uh, like on a picket line. This is how you, um, pull together, uh, a demand letter for like a list for like tenants. Like, you know, these are the sorts of things that like, we're going to be talking, we're going to be doing concrete skill shares plus these discussions about our experiences and sharing our stories. And, you know, hopefully we're going to come away from this. A big goal of it is to um, come up with a lot of like different, like um, just like content. We're going to be recording videos and, uh, like uh, audio and like also and then transcribing things and writing things up. And we're hoping that once we're done, we're going to have a big report that we can share out with people who can't attend. Yeah, privacy concerns obviously considered. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there. The, this is a very the, consent is a big is a big uh, thing with uh, us as organizers. I should hope so. <laughs> yeah. You would think, but you know, not everyone yeah. is, is as down as you yeah. would imagine. Hey. So basically we're building a perfect little utopia for like four <laughs> days and y'all come out because we're going to fix the revolution. So <laughs> kidding, obviously. <laughs> on, on, on a more concrete level, like what, what does like a day here look like? Like what are, what are, what are, what are, what are we doing? <laughs> oh, that's fun. That's a fun question. Uh, if I may. John. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, what we're thinking right now, basically, is that a day it looks like we get up in the morning, we drink coffee, we have breakfast, and we have a little assembly check-in to see how things are going, if we need to make any major adjustments, and we put up a uh, sort of a schedule for the afternoon's events that was populated from the conversation that was happening in the evening the night before, and anything that anybody wants to bring up to that schedule that happened between yesterday and this morning. Uh, then we're going to roll off into um, basically what would be some of the kind of like things we already know for sure that we wanted to see happening that we could get on a on a sort of schedule ahead of time. So some of these skill shares that were planned that would require kind of like pre-planning or maybe some discussions that people reached out ahead of time that they definitely wanted to have. So that stuff would be happening earlier in the day. Um, that, you know, we're, we're talking about having sort of just like sandwich bars and, you know, make your own lunch kind of situations going on. There should be a lot of different things happening in different geographical locations on the site. So you kind of get, get a choice of where you want to go. It's not like there's one big event. Um, we're going to try to group things that are sort of thematically similar in so that they're nearby each other in case you want to go around and see, um, what the different kind of stuff is going to be. And then in the afternoon, it's going to be like, I mean, you know, okay, of course, this is like how we're intending right now. The afternoon would be the um, discussions and skill shares and events and circles and spaces that um, 
were generated out of the conversations that have been happening in the space so that people came and thought, you know, we had this conversation yesterday that really inspired me. Let's talk about this and I'm going to make space for that. So we're going to have big map where you figure out where you want to go and you're going to be able to wander around and meet people. We're trying to incorporate a lot of events that make it easier to meet other people that you don't know yet. Um, where there's going to be tables where you can do arts and crafts. There's going to be game space for whatever kind of games you want to play. There's going to be places for kids to hang out. There's going to be a quiet tent where you can take some contemplation time. You know, at some point we want to do it like a kind of grief circle for people to deal with what they've been kind of going through in the world. And, you know, some, uh, you know, utopia envisioning arts space, you know, these kinds of things like where, um, you know, if somebody wants to teach someone else a dance, like that's the kind of thing that we're really hoping can go on in the afternoon. Uh, then we would be feeding everybody dinner. And we kind of had this idea we've been playing with that we would have two campfires after dinner. And at one campfire, we'll have kind of an open forum where anybody can talk for like 10, 15, 20 minutes, you know, whatever, however long people need who are there, depending on how popular that is. And just kind of air everything that's in their head. And we'll have a note taker so we can try to incorporate what comes out of those discussions into the next day's agenda. Um, and so that's sort of like what we were what we were envisioning. And then for the other don't, campfire, it's people yeah, who don't want to do don't, that. Don't, don't forget this, the other, the, the other, yeah. uh, the other campfire so, yeah. for people yeah, who are yeah, like, yeah. I'm done with talk. <laughs> <laughs> I need to just sit and stare at some flames for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine I'll be going back and forth between the fires. So, you know, that's also an option. Uh, but the idea is to get kind of like somewhere between I think, what are we calling it? It's like somewhere between a conference and a music festival. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there, where you're able to sort of move around and you don't have to go and sit in one place and do like, okay, for this hour, this is where I, you know, it's, it's, it's meant to be a bit more informal. Um, and we're hoping that that makes a lot more space for people to sort of explore and people to meet other people that they don't already know. I don't know if that, if that, if that sums up sort of like what I'm imagining, because that's like, you know, that's the spirit. So I think if that's the question, like, what does the day look like? Well, hopefully it's fun. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the main the main thing we're thinking here is to make it a sort of low stress and low stakes place that we can talk about some of the highest stress and highest stakes questions that we have to deal with. So, Yeah. And like that being said, like, because we're modeling it this way specifically based on people's experience with like the symbiosis uh, federations, founding conference, that sort of thing where there were a lot of stakes and people were mm -hmm. trying to kind of like funnel different discussions through different ways. And this is not a necessarily a critique of how that all went down. It's just like based on our, our experience and our experiences with those sorts of things. The goal is to, for this to be, if it's successful, the first of many of these sorts of things, um, many of these kinds of gatherings and discussions and to provide a model for how it could happen Mm -hmm. But to keep, um, we deliberately decided that this, we're not going to make like a bit, we're not going to have a big points of unity debate and discussion and voting on assembly sort of thing. We will use assemblies for, you know, certain things like setting up like our uh, community agreements and that sort of stuff and kind of like getting the days rolling and kind of getting the days closed. But the goal is like to not, is to, bring people into conversation who haven't, who maybe don't have the basis of trust for those bigger collective mm -hmm. dis like discussions yet, but maybe they will later. But the, the goal is for now is we're 
We're getting, uh, we're building and expanding our networks. We're building and expanding our trust with different people and building and expanding our knowledge so that we can go out and do the kind of work that we think we need to do to, I don't know, survive as a species on this planet. So um, that's one of the reasons why if there are some people who are like, oh, I don't know, this seems really kind of wishy-washy. It's very, it, that was a very deliberate decision based mm-hmm. on previous experience from organizers who'd been to these sorts of things. And the goal is really to, to have a place where we can have discussions about high stakes issues without being so invested in it that we feel like if our concept of how to solve that problem doesn't come out as the like solution that we've somehow failed. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, like, think, yeah. I was to say that, that I think one of the, one of these things that you, that you uh, brought up there that's really important. Mm-hmm. is like not even just in these previous conferences or congresses or gatherings that we've been to, have we seen this be a problem, but basically at least I can speak for myself in a lot of organizing spaces that I've been in over the past, you know, like 15 years that I've been pretty active in, in the organizing universe um basically that one of the main problems that we have with this kind of like space of trust that we definitely know that we need to be able to work together moving forward is that we don't really have shared language a lot of the time and we think we do because we use the same words but we often use them to mean different things or we often use different words to mean the same things as well and then we come from kind of different organizing cultures and a lot of different places like that some are more are less, uh, we should say that maybe that there there are different places where you show solidarity in a different way. You show good faith and you show that you're committed in a different way. What it means to be democratic in a space seems different depending on this, on the tradition that you, that you maybe come from. So what we're really hoping to do is kind of make space to incorporate all of that. So we were, I was joking, it was a camping trip where many camping trips fit, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that like, that there should be an opportunity for people to kind of like learn to talk past those, those barriers that we might have to, to understanding each other. And like that success would really look like people coming away, like believing in other people's commitment to get this done. And with the kind of contacts that they need to support each other moving forward as things come up in different places, as opposed to just like, here's a solution, like here's a blueprint for how to get this done. You know, that relationship that you have with a person who's had that experience in the past is going to be way more valuable than any document they give you based on their experience, because you're going to be able to say, well, shit, I wasn't expecting this to happen. Like, what do we do? And then you can talk through that with them. And like, that's really, I think that's really the foundation of our being able to share this knowledge with each other is that, we have the opportunity to kind of engage in these ways that are like more focused on the kind of just uh, sort of dynamism of the, of the challenges that we're dealing with right now. So emergence is a big thing. Things yeah. are always going to like, things are always going to be changing. Like uh, we are, we need to be prepared to deal with, a world that's going to be throwing challenges at us that like we haven't like we haven't had solutions for and like because we're going through this like really kind of like catastrophic like uh moment of like uh climate change and um and, <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, I don't know how else to say it, but like, and, and so it's just like engendering the idea, the idea that we're constantly evaluating what's happening around us, uh, both like at our local level and across the you know, regions and globally, and then taking new knowledge in and coming up with new solutions um, in a real, like, in like a truly experimental way, like thinking about things as like experiments and how we're going to like come up with new solutions to these problems. Cause it's just, well, like, as we kept telling people, cause when we were out there uh, trying to bring groups in, everyone's telling us our capacity, this sounds great. Our capacity is incredibly low. Uh, and that has just been across the entire like spectrum of organizations. Yeah. And that includes huge, big put together organizations like, you know, unions versus little mutual aid groups. Everybody mm-hmm. is dealing with this like feeling of exhaustion and like capacity. Our goal is to get people together so that they can build capacity um, through these discussions and be prepared for things because capacity is always going to be an issue. And our goal is to get people to this point where, because their, um, their mindset is okay, new challenge. Let's think about it critically and come up with solutions that fit this moment, as opposed to keep trying to force things into, um, preset, like easy. I mean, I don't want to say easy, but like, I think that sometimes like everyone's trying to mine history for the, like the, the one weird trick to solve all these problems. And I think that the one weird trick is that human beings are creative, critical thinking machines. Like our, our brain is like this thing for taking in information and generating new, new thought and action. And we need to embrace that. Um, because if we don't, I don't think we're going to be very successful. Certainly. And yeah, in these times of, of just increasing uncertainty, that kind of humility and flexibility and like continued building of comfort with that uncertainty is going to be super essential to our being able to maintain even sort of like the basic ability to take action, I think. So we're going to have to like continue to like to lean into that uncertainty and to sort of I think, you know, like kind of historically the being comfortable with things changing and being comfortable with uncertainty is actually one of our great strengths, right? Cause we can actually start to get moving while everybody else is still going, what the hell? <laughs> you know? And so I think, you know, that's going to definitely be something that's going to serve us. And yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, I have, I have one last uh, question on an extremely practical level, which is like, what, what is the like facility situation here? Like mm-hmm. how, what, what are, what are people sleeping in? Uh, so like in right now we like we have a camp space reserved for 200 people um and so we understand that camping is not always super accessible but we are very fortunate that like the national lakeshore has specific accessible facilities um for folks and we do have uh disabled like uh comrades coming to this event and we're working on making sure that those uh with their particular needs don't um keep them from participating fully in the event there's um the discussions and circles themselves will be um at like shelter space um a bit away from where the uh, camping is happening so we're 
organizing transport between those two spaces. Um, for people who cannot camp, we are uh, working on organizing some hotel space for folks. Um, and then for people who can camp but don't have any equipment, our goal is to, we're going to um, basically acquire un, like enough camping equipment for a sizable chunk of folks to come. And uh, it's like it's literally today walking through uh, Walmart with my uh, daughter, looking at their camp equipment uh, and pricing out things like sleeping bags and camp uh, like uh, sleeping mattresses, and tents, that sort of thing. So yeah, if people have have stuff they want to donate to the cause too, like I think we should be able to take some of that in. I think we were just talking yesterday about the um, possibility of having uh, like camp gear repair zone. So if you have things that you find at the thrift store that are like a torn tent or something like that, we'll help you fix it. You know, we just want to make sure that everybody has these uh, supplies as well because they're they're broadly useful. I know I've used my camping gear in. Uh, some uh, politically motivated ways in the past. <laughs> so I think that it's not bad for people to have it if you need it. Just say. Also, uh, you know, the camping aspect of it is also it's more of a feature than a bug. Like there's like a like mm-hmm. so to so to speak. Like the pandemic is not over yet, as we're like seeing right. Um, in spite of everything that like uh, the, our ruling class is desperately trying to get us to uh, agree to. And so having um, the accommodations outside and doing the, um, doing the actual events like out, out of doors where there's lots of ventilation, we think is like right now, one of those events so that we're not going to get so that people aren't going to come away from this um, getting sick, which is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, from I mean, as a person who's recovering from COVID, uh, COVID round two, um, and as a healthcare worker, that was one of our big uh, concerns because we we when we started making these plans, we really weren't sh- sure what was going to be happening in terms of the pandemic, and having it out of doors was just like a surefire way that we knew that we could. At the very least, we can minimize the chances that people would be getting sick from just showing up and being in the same space together. Absolutely. And we're definitely encouraging people who are coming together with friends and comrades in little groups to self-organize their camps as much as they would like to do that, um, to sort of make plans together, to limit the... um, you know, the, the need for, for spaces, you know, with sharing up tents and all this kind of stuff, which to the extent that people are comfortable with that, that, you know, people, if you need to get in touch with people from around you, if you don't know anybody, you can reach out to us. If we know anybody else who's looking for somebody to try to coordinate with, we'll definitely put you in touch. That's something we want to be able to do is like offer some of these connective services to help people, um, kind of link up with people who are coming from, from their areas or people who are interested in the same kinds of things, um, and so we're kind of thinking our, of ourselves uh, in the organizing body as facilitators of those connections and trying to like imagine how what we do will make those connections most likely to to happen. Um, so in terms of the of the facilities as well, I think we, we talked about trying to get some camp stoves together for people who need to use sort of a kitchen space to try to limit the amount of things that people need to bring for that. But definitely feel free 
uh, to bring bring your own stuff and 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 set up whatever whatever you need. And let us know if you need help from us. We'll we'll do our best to accommodate that. And people are getting fed, like so. We're mm-hmm. planning on having meals uh, arranged, and that'll be vegan, and uh, with the caveat that folks who want to have separate food can like do their own self-organized like cooking if that's a thing that they that they're really committed to um and we're planning on having like all the necessities of like lots of water making sure that like we've got um first aid lined up there's going to be street medics who are participating in the work of organizing all that harm reduction um and just generally like uh like some of the other things that we haven't really mentioned it's like we know that we're bringing a bunch of people with a lot of big ideas and big personalities together and that means we're probably gonna have to deal with some conflict yeah. maybe i don't know <laughs> so uh having um conflicts uh like people who are good at mediating conflict we're gonna have like a, a crew of people who do that we're working on um like child watch training because this is going to be a family-friendly space um making sure that we know how to take care of each other in case like shady people from outside try to do something like whatever like our goal is to just make sure that like this is um as safe as it can be bringing people together and as accessible as it can be understanding the limitations of there's going to be you're going to be outside so there might be you know all the some of the fun of having like a collective group of people all outside together which can be a lot of fun i in yeah, my experience like <laughs> I'm I'm waiting for karaoke and for um, like our open mic and people bringing out like instruments and like just having like you know uh, we were we've been discussing like um, you know some soccer uh, potentially being a thing um, determining uh, like placing bets on who's going to be more into soccer based on various ideological affinities. <laughs> and past experience and um yeah hit us up if you want to play some music if you've got an idea for something fun that sounds cool to do and just to to come to circle back to this i think like with the point about conflict mediation i just want to make that like super clear just because we're not going to spend half a day trying to come up with community uh the points of unity does not mean we don't have expectations about how you act in the space so our plan is basically to say like don't be an asshole (laughs) (laughs) and then that means you know like in all the ways that we know uh that those things can happen and then if somebody accidentally is being an asshole or somebody's are accidentally being an asshole like that those are things we can we can manage because we all know what it is that we're doing here um so it's definitely not a free-for-all you know it's a this is a space where the normal things we would expect in space are expected you know explicitly (laughs) yeah yeah oh well oh man i'm excited <laughs> yeah me too um yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to people i, I don't know I, I i don't actually know how widespread bonfires are in the u.s but we do a lot in the midwest and bonfires are a great time i'm excited oh. for people to experience that it's it's great. love it um yeah so i guess um do you two have anything closing that you want to say? And also where can people find this and attempt to go to it? And also when is it happening? Because that's, that's another important. It's going to be July uh, 29th through 31st. 
um, and attendance is uh, free. There's no uh, there's no charge, but we are soliciting donations. So we're doing a fundraiser um, through Open Collective, um, and we've been very generously uh, given uh, an offer of matching donations from uh, one of the organizers who got like a got a little bit of a chunk of change to kind of contribute to that sort of thing. We're very um, excited about that. So. Uh, if you go on to, you can follow us on Twitter and, uh, and I believe that's at, uh, dual power, uh, 22. Let me double check. I think it's at dual power gathering, uh, is our Twitter and, um, the website uh, is dual, dual power, 2022.org. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, if you go on the website, you'll find the links to everything you need to know. You can get in touch with us. You can, like, you know, give us your your feedback. If you love it, if you hate it, if you, you know, whatever. We're, we're probably not going to change the whole thing right now, but show up and we can change it at the time. <laughs> so. I, I'll also say we do have, like, a organizing Discord and people who are, like, serious about, like, getting involved and want to have things, like, want to come to this and with things that they have specific visions for now is like absolutely time to get engaged with that because we're like, we're working towards making, uh, getting people into the, like who are the participants to really own the event itself. So, um, that'll be like, that's something we have. I believe we're going to do probably two more community calls, one in uh, June and one in July. Every one of those calls has been really amazing. Lots of great people. Um, and, during those calls, we're going to be doing some training on because you got to do some prep work when you're doing this kind of like generative discussion, like popular education, like unconference style um, events, like coming to them with a little bit of an understanding of what that looks like is really key to uh, it being successful. So um, we encourage people who want to come get signed up and then you'll get into our mailing list. And our mailing list is where we disseminate like when those calls are happening and you can also hop in our discord uh and as long as you're cool and agree to our community agreements we would like bring you in and like get all sorts of shit together and we're very excited for people to come in uh, there's still a fair number of slots open for the event itself we're like almost halfway full so yeah I mean, definitely we're, we've been trying to think about this as an event that we would want to go to and we want it to be an event that you want to come to also. So help us make it so. <laughs> yeah, that that's, yeah, th- th- this is really exciting. I'm going to be going to it. Uh, yeah. So yeah, thank, thank, thank you. Thank you to you both for, for joining us for talking about this. And I'm excited to, I'm excited to see lots of people there. Hey. <laughs> hey i mean we've all been wanting to see each other for yeah, two, and, two and a half fucking years right yeah. so yeah. I, I miss just... your i miss seeing your face with dimension <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sick of your flat face <laughs> for real well, yeah thanks so much for having us on to talk about it yeah, uh, really looking forward to it I mean, we're getting closer and closer. It's just like, it just gets more exciting and also a little nerve wracking, but thankfully a lot of people have been stepping up and I'm very, I, I'm confident it's going to be really like a really great thing. Yeah. And we, we will, we, we will have links to everything in, in the show notes. Um, yeah. This has been, it could happen here. You can find us in the usual places. At, 
happen to your bot and stuff. Alright, goodbye, have fun. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.